0: This is uh, Richie Wexler for Vintage Animals Archive Outsider Podcast. Oh man, this is exciting. Um, a lot of doing podcasts uh, involve reaching out to a lot of people that say no, and there's a lot of rejection. And every once in a while, you get an agreement that makes 200, 300 rejections worthwhile. This entire episode is that, um, starting with... Uh, an amazing guest that I, it was such a privilege to talk to, uh, Mink Stoll, you know from uh, all the John Waters movies, music, theater, I got to talk to today. Another guest is Peaches Christ, an amazing uh, filmmaker. Uh, they, they run a great um, podcast called Midnight Mass with Michael Varadhi, who is also um, part of this episode today. I'm not going to say very much except for first, go see. This is all, this whole episode is about idol worship with Mixed and Peaches Christ. They're on tour. Uh, amazing show, a little comedy, a little storytelling, a little, little interview, all kinds of great things. Um, the tickets available the uh, start at, um, it is sold out already, but February 10th and 11th, San Francisco Electric Box. Eclectic Box, maybe there's a cancellation. The next show is on the 14th, Salem, Massachusetts, Cinema, Salem. February 15th, Providence, Rhode Island, Columbia's Theater. Uh, The next one is February 16th and 17th, New York City, Green Room 42. Then Philadelphia, My Hometown, February 18th, Philly PA, Punchline, Live Nation. And then the last show is February 20th, Washington, D.C., Comedy Loft. Please go to peacheschrist.com to get ticket information, and please go see this show. Uh, I'm really hoping these conversations will let you n- uh, have a little view into how amazing these people are and how much fun it will be to see to see them, so thank you. Uh, we have a sponsor for today's episode. It is Grew from Ilwynstudios.com, I-L-L-W-I-N-D-S-T-U-D-I-O-S.com. Uh, I've known Gru for a long time, and they're a really amazing person. They make really cool art. Please support them. Please check out their website. Please check out their shop. Illwind Studios was founded in 2019, originally focusing on woodcuts. Uh, their work is now exploration of fiber, Appalachia, and international trauma as it relates to their family history as well as to West Virginia. They are currently based in Philly. Illwind Studios continues to work with and exhibit in spaces located in Appalachia. Please check them out. Um, very cool person, doing very cool work. And again, illwindstudios.com. Yeah. And again, if you want to be a sponsor too, we're taking sponsors. Uh, We're getting some, you know, we got some good eyes on this thing, good ears on it. So please, if you want to sponsor a future episode, be in touch. Happy to to, uh, help you out. Thanks. Hey, I'm not going to say much about interviewing Mink except for what a darling, kind, funny... You know you you, you don't really know what you're getting because if you judge mink on her parts especially with john waters you're not always getting a nice you know easy to deal with person but it was but i can tell you i can assure you that speaking to mink was one of the best conversations i've had with anyone just i don't know i felt probably too comfortable but she just made me feel really at home we talked about all kinds of stuff and i can't wait for you to hear this and again Please go see this show. Um, runs February 10th until the 20th. What a lovely human being. What a funny, talented, uh, smart woman I got to talk to and enjoy. whatever you've made musically is uh, it kind of blew me away and i'm glad you're you know playing piano i mean to me it doesn't you know i'm isn't... not yeah
1: <laughs> i'm not learning a piano so that i can perform and i'm a long way away from that but just but for your i
0: mean i think for your for enjoyment me, it's just it's interesting to hear about it's all yeah um,
1: it's, it's very it's it's for me every time i can even master a tiny little one page piece <sighs> and play it almost well it feels to me like I've just climbed Mount Everest. It's of so course. hard. It is. I don't. It's hard.
0: Are there like? Do you have like a dream song or two that you just can imagine just playing playing by yourself at some point? Do you?
1: Um, is there like a song that I kind of? I don't. I started out wanting to learn to play so I could do uh, the American Songbook. Um, you know, just anything Gershwin or Cole Porter. Yeah. But it, Um, my teacher is classically oriented. And so I'm actually I'm learning classical stuff. So, you know, there's a little, little minuet by Bach that I'm learning to play. There's a little piece by Mozart that I, you know, so it's, it's, I'm going in a completely different direction from what I thought, but I, I like it.
0: Yeah. Does that involve also learning how to read music or is is that something? How is that? I, I could not do that. I tried that and I couldn't do it.
1: Well, three (laughs) years in uh i'm starting to be able to nice. it takes a long time
0: yeah i just i don't know I, I you know i think all the best things we do art music whatever is the stuff we do for ourselves as our, as our main yeah. fan and so th- it's really nice to hear about that yeah um,
1: I, I, I spend a good i spend a couple hours a day practicing
0: the first thing i really want to get into is i i'd uh, in reading interviews and such I know you had um through I guess more of the earlier John waters films, like didn't love that people would call you amateur, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because to me, the more I've studied you, the more I really that you're a serious actress and a serious musician, and that's kind of what I want to start this with because I don't think i you know it's a shame that people don't get how much goes into these kind of things because they're not always artists, I don't know, I think people that are non artists don't understand the dedication, the work, um, and how deep it is because they look at his comedy or camp and they're like, oh, it's silly, but it's some serious work. And I'm just impressed with what you've done.
1: Well, thank you. Um, you know, John and I just did an interview with the New York Times a couple of days oh, wow. ago. It's going to be in in the in, in their uh, bi-annual style, semi-annual style Excellent. magazine.
0: Congratulations. That's awesome.
1: Thank you. Um, and we talked about that. And uh, because I would get, I do, I, I am offended when people call us of course. amateurs because and say that we were not professionals. We were very professional. What we were was untrained. And and there's right. a big difference. There's a big. We were untrained. None of us had had an acting lesson ever in our you know right. when we started out. And but we were professional in that we showed up on time. We knew our lines. We were ready to work. We were not on drugs we were not drinking. <laughs> we were absolutely there and prepared to work and yeah. stay all day and get the job done. Yeah. so that is professionalism yeah and we did it without pretty much without complaint
0: I can always I can always imagine I can only imagine that you're also probably doing like 13 14 hour days for weeks upon time I'm sure it was must have been chaos it must have been we, we
1: in the early days we filmed only on weekends okay okay all right so it, it wasn't it wasn't that grueling, but I mean, we were working, we didn't have trailers, we didn't yeah. have food, you know, we were out <laughs> in the cold, we were, um, you know, I mean, some people had it worse than others. I mean, I, I think of poor Edith sitting in that playpen in her underwear, oh my God. It, and it was cold. I mean, on those days, I had a coat when I had to be out there, I had a coat, so I wasn't as cold. And we were a quarter of a mile from a bathroom. Oh, my God you know, through the woods, you had to walk through, a, you know, through the woods to get to a bathroom. So, you know, working conditions were yeah. not great. But there we were, and we did it. And we didn't bitch about it. We were happy to be there. And we, we would do it until it was done. And just
0: thinking about that time timeframe of, of any of the films, was there one, I don't know, was there a particular part? Was there a particular... One of the things we try to do is get the stories and so you, any, anything that comes up as a story feel free to share but there's is there any any stories you can think about those days that just kind of like you know maybe you've not thought uh, about in while I don't want you to tell one you've already told a thousand times either just for your own sake but uh, um
1: you know, you know it's, it's it's weird because it is so long ago
0: Yeah what about the, the maybe the ones that are you know the the, the uh, I mean, another favorite, is *Serial Mom*. What about the ones that were kind of in the later days? Oh,
1: I loved *Serial Mom*. *Serial Mom* is, a, I, uh, and
0: you—you you were really great did. in that. The—the
1: the, the day, um, I have to admit, I was very intimidated to be meeting Kathleen Turner. Okay. i, I was—I t- was scared to meet her. Um, uh, she was a really big movie star yeah. at the time. Right, 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 right. And he had her, and there was a. She had a reputation for being a little difficult she so the day that i met her we had been i had been called to the set a day early just for a makeup test and i went i was sitting in the trailer i didn't have my glasses on so i couldn't see sitting in the trailer and suddenly uh, this presence sort of looms over my shoulder and says oh i'm kathleen and i was just trying so i didn't want her to see how nervous i was so um you know i kept it together but a little later I you know I, I saw her again she was she was actually so lovely to work with yeah so easy and so pleasant and so friendly and she was having such a good time that you know all of my fears were completely unfounded nice. yes she was absolutely lovely and you know I mean she didn't you know it was like I, you know, I was called in, in the courtroom scene, which is one of my favorites. She, she, You know, I'm screaming at her. You know, I'm screaming horrible <laughs> things at her. And she just, she just, you know, it all just, she was fine. She was yeah. never offended by anything. I mean, it was in the script. Right. But nonetheless, you know, and so she knew in advance that I was going to be saying these things. But she was a pleasure. I, and I have to say, I am really sorry that she was never nominated for an Academy award for that performance because it is it's sad. the most subtle performance of a monster. Yeah. And, and it, it's really good. So and it,
0: it goes back to kind of, we're, we're talking about it around like comedy and horror that those are seen as like lower for some reason than another. but some of the most amazing work is in horror and comedy. You know, you're, just, you're like, why are these people not, why is this not part of it?
1: Right. Well, Um, I don't, I don't do, I don't watch horror movies. If you were were to ask me, the only, the last horror movie that I saw was Get Out. Okay. That's a a tough one. Yeah. It's a tough one, but there's no blood. Right, right, right. Uh, Fake blood scares me. I don't like it. I get very creepy.
0: How was it working with on, um, I'm forgetting the name of it, because the the movie with um, All About Evil, how was, was that tricky for you being,
1: when it's when I'm in front of the camera, it doesn't bother me. To slide it because I know the, I fake. The, oh, face, the lip thing
0: know, freaked me out. That really threw of me having off. Having
1: my mouth sewn shut. It
0: looked real. That,
1: <laughs> it was real. <laughs> it absolutely was real. There, I had a I had a um, a prosthetic. You know, I had done a face cast, and there was a very thin membrane oh. of uh, I don't know what they make it out of, but there was a very yeah, yeah, thin yeah. membrane on my lips. So uh, my my mouth was sewn shut. It just didn't touch my actual lips, but I couldn't gotcha. speak. I mean, I, you know, my mouth was closed. I couldn't, and I and it made me. Uh, I I have to say I hated it because I'm kind of chatty, <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't Good. speak. Okay. So you know i scribble, you know, I had a pad and a pencil. I'd scribble on this pad and pencil, and you know on the pad. And I had to have it done twice because there's a scene where it happens. And then there's another scene where we undo it, you know, where I scream and and it opens up, but they're different days.
0: How long were you in like makeup or how long were you in that? Were you in that? And before that, the first part, how long were you in that makeup?
1: It, w- it was hours. Wow. I don't know how many hours, but it was, a, it was a couple of hours, you know, it was a while. Okay. Um, and it was, I mean, Tasha was great. She did not, ever touch me you okay. know I mean I, I, you know there was there was no you know she did a really good job Um, and then the second day that we did it the second day was actually worse because I had to lie on the floor in this attic and it was really you know for quite for quite a while it was yeah. it was it was kind of grueling but you know the thing was I couldn't talk I couldn't eat I couldn't sip water there was you know the, so there's kind of a there's a feeling of disassociation from your own body. And and the other time, and and there was one other time that I had that a similar disassociated feel, feeling, which was uh, when we were filming Cry Baby. Okay. Now, the sad thing about my part in Cry Baby is that we filmed, you know, there's, there's, there's a joke and there's a setup to the joke and the setup got cut out of the movie.
0: Oh no. I yeah. I watched about eight, 8 or 9 of the films but I did not have time to do Crybaby but I It's I watched, okay. I watched the first 9. Okay. Uh,
1: and <laughs> well, in Crybaby the only <laughs> scene that I'm in, I'm in an iron lung.
0: Okay. Okay. And
1: I'm, I'm in an iron lung and I'm smoking a cigarette. Gotcha. And I'm in, you know, it's in a courtroom. And that's the only scene that I'm in. But the the joke was that earlier in the film the scenes that were cut out was my husband who was played by troy donahue we were uh we had a truck then we sold cigarettes to high school kids (laughs) so (laughs) you know so we were we were set up you know we were these terrible people we had all this awful brown stuff on our teeth you know we were just disgusting looking and um so you know, as as we were cigarette sellers, that was the joke why I was in an iron lung still smoking. Gotcha. And unfortunately the setup didn't happen, so the joke kind of doesn't land in this, like, why is she in an iron lung? But I was in that iron lung for several hours.
0: Oh god. And was and it like a it was a real like old school iron lung? It's a real
1: lung? one. It wasn't functioning, but it's a real one. Right.
0: <laughs> right.
1: It was a real one. Oh and god. when you're in it, um, you have absolutely no visual connection with your own body. You're in a tube. Your head is outside the tube. There's a mirror over, over your head, but the mirror shows is, is, is slanted so that you can see people talking to you and they can see your face. So you're not even seeing your own face.
2: Oh, God. The mirror.
1: So you're non, no part of your body is visible to you. You can feel it. You know, you can touch yourself. You know, you're there. Oh, it's like having but a CAT that,
0: scan for like six hours.
1: It was really weird. <laughs> it was, oh, I'm sorry. But even in a CAT scan, if you, you know, look a little, you know, you can lift right. your head and look. Right. It was no way to see. It was a very strange sensation, I have to admit.
0: Um, I want to segue what you said before about um, your husband. And I want to segue. I generally don't ask about people so much to someone... About somebody else because it feels doesn't feel so good. But I I, I love Bud Court. What would you like? Did, did you, I I have to bring up Bud Court because he's like, he, you know, you know, our our podcast is based on outsiders and he is my favorite. Did you get to know him at all? Doing um,
1: I, I got to know but cheerleader. Him I got to know him some. He's like, you know, I I liked him a lot and I he's liked such a sweetheart. sweetheart. Yeah, he really is. He is a sweetheart. I have not seen him in probably twenty years. Wow. So, well, now that I'm back in LA, I've been back here, you know, off and on now but for you know, for four years, I live in a part of town where nobody else, you know, I live in an odd part of town, sort of off the beaten path. And um, I just haven't seen him. I used to run into him every now and then.
0: You know, he just looks, he, he's, there's part of him that just seems like he's never aged. He has a certain like quality that he just feels young, even you know. Even in, even at his age, but he just, there's a certain youth to him that is really nice to see. Well, well yeah,
1: well, the, I think there's a, yes, okay. In, in my a, opinion, I could be,
0: you know, that's, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't,
1: well, know. like I said, I haven't seen him for 20 years, so I yeah, honestly yeah, yeah. don't know. Um, but he is a very private person. I think he likes people, but he very much likes his solitude. Yeah. I've never been to his home. Um. You know, I mean, I don't know actually. I don't know whether anybody's going to so. it. No, you know, I don't
0: get the impression that he really yeah. is, is very, is a, in the, but you, know, you
1: know, he likes people. It's not yeah. that he doesn't, but it's, it's, uh, but he, he, he prefers, he prefers a certain amount of solitude or, of or he, but he likes his privacy.
0: In the characters you play, it's a bit of an alter ego. Maybe I'm wrong. And I feel like there's a, there's a correlation that I've seen with, some of the nicest people get being able to play the meanest and deranged.
1: Well, um, horrible people are fun to play. Yes. You know, I mean, it, it's they're they're just fun. I mean, the, the I've played characters. People say, "Oh, I love your character." I, yeah, but you wouldn't like them if you knew them. Right. You no, know, if that if, if if you know you nobody would like Connie Marble.
2: She's right.
1: not somebody you want to have. She's not somebody you want to invite to a dinner party. Um. But she was really fun to play, you know there's just and it, it there's part of it is taffy in particular was yeah. wonderful because she just got to be so me and i I love that um you know it because it's it's behavior that you cannot indulge in in real life, and if you do, you really shouldn't
0: i'm I've been obsessed with the Cockettes. we got to interview um. Uh, Fayette Hauser, um, I, I, to me are like they—I feel like they, whatever they were doing—it uh, took it th- 40 more years for the drag community to catch up with to a certain extent.
1: First time I saw the Cockettes um, was back in 1972, I think, uh, and they'd been—you know—they'd been a troop for a while. They'd, you right. know, they'd, people had come and gone. I mean, by the time I was hanging out with them, uh, people like Sylvester were already gone. Okay. You know, hibiscus was already gone. So I never really knew them. But um, I just thought they were so wonderful. You know, Scrumbly, you know who he is. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Scrumbly had glitter in his beard. I I had never seen this. I mean, I had been exposed to drag many times. Uh, You know, obviously, I worked with Divine. So I knew what I understood some of what drag was. Of course, Divine's drag was unlike other people <laughs> most Important. people but anyway yeah. you know divine drag was a combination of divine john van smith you know there, there was a lot there were a lot of people that went into the creation of divine Strag. right so uh, but the coquettes i just had never seen this kind of anarchic gaiety this anarchic <sighs> joyfulness that that they were you know they were just so much fun yeah and i, I um and Scrumbly not only had glitter in his beard, but he was so holding a sign that said "Save Soviet Jewelry." <laughs> that just cracked <laughs> me up. I just were thought that was so. Funny.
0: Were you part of? Were you in Vice Palace or am I making? I was. Love? How was that? How was that experience for you? That if you was a great
1: experience. I, I got my very first standing ovation in my oh, life my. in Vice Palace. Yes, I did a wonderful little tap number to us. That song on my album called "No Nose Nanook." I, that, that's from Vice palace i, performed I love that. that song i performed that song in Bryce palace
0: i love that song because I, I i actually went through song by song and made little notes which maybe we'll get to maybe we won't okay. But for that one it felt like one of those old it felt like one of those songs from like the 30s that's dirtier than songs today <laughs> and then it feels from like at some the point product. then apparently at 48 seconds in it becomes it feels like it becomes a strip tease.
1: It kind of. Um, it, you can't we listen to music. Wanted, it wasn't, but we, oh, it was a great little number. We had...
0: It's so fun.
1: I came out on the stage by myself in a little white parka with sequins on it and tap shoes. And my hair was bright orange because it was still... It was after Pink Flamingo, so my hair was still you
2: know, okay. this
1: bright crayon color. And I started singing. And then from either side of the stage came out six little igloos, little cardboard <laughs> igloos. And behind, <laughs> behind the igloos were coquettes. And and then at a certain moment in the song, they all got up and started dancing. We did a little tap number with it. It was so much fun. It was just- I can't imagine. And
0: also like, you know, what's interesting about your connection with Peaches is like, that's the birth of the Midnight movie, really, especially with performance.
1: Kind of, because these shows were done at midnight at a movie at Palace Theater in San Francisco.
0: Yeah, so I just feel like it's interesting. I feel like it's interesting to think about your past because they don't make a lot of sense across, but then they do, if you think about it. Um, what was the, what was the, how did you, how did you two connect? I don't, I don't know if I know the story of how you both kind of connect. I know they reached out to you, I guess, to be part of their show, but did you connect before that? Or did you know of them? No, or? I had
1: never, I had no idea who he was. I got, I okay. got contacted to, um, at the time I actually had a publicist one time <laughs> in my life that I had a publicist. Nice. Um, and and he yeah Peaches contacted him and invited me up to san francisco to be on stage you know to to be interviewed on stage and I, that didn't happen to me very often i was gotcha. i was not usually you know that that was that was an unusual event for me huh. and i so I, I flew up to san francisco and when you know and then I, I walked into the theater it was at the old bridge theater in san francisco I walked into the theater and I was immediately overwhelmed. There was a big banner on the back of the stage that said, Hail Mink. <laughs> there was an animatronic heavy gravel on the stage. They were showing Desperate Living. They had an oh animatronic heavy gravel um, stirring a vat of rabies potion. I was completely overwhelmed. I had never been treated <laughs> sorry. like
0: that. I don't mean to laugh, but it's just, it's just so over it the was top.
1: fabulous. But yeah. you know what- I had never been sort of. I had never been treated like this before, yeah. and the audience was. I mean, I was in tears when by the oh, time it was wow. over, it was so amazing to me, and the fact that they had gone to so much trouble to make me happy, to to treat me well, and to make me feel comfortable yeah. and make me feel welcome there. It was over. It was really quite special. It's
0: really me. nice to hear. Peaches to me is one of the nicest people I've, oh, I've gotten to know, know through this all this 100%. and. Um, Best. what a good human being so yeah. i want to get into theater um i i you know uh there was it was hard to find dig, deeper information about your theater work but then i did uh i did watch um women, women behind bars i have not watched. You, it. you killed you killed them you were amazing in that like i didn't oh well thank you you're you're working that and it was also just nice seeing you interact with uh tracy lords who also yeah. just killed yeah. it in that
1: um tracy was that was tracy's very first stage play Wow, she did a really good job for her very first time on stage i mean she'd done uh, many movies and television but that was her first theater theater performance i thought she was great
0: yeah i mean both of you i I, you know when you see different i think theater brings out something in people because it's live i've done some theater and like it just it just something about theater to me brings people to life because it's something it's the intimacy i think of the reaction like when you're making films you're not getting that but no you're getting this yeah um i'm curious so i I did some research in terms of uh theater you've done i didn't skin a lot but i know you were um in the mutilated i know you were uh a single straight man dracula
1: oh yeah that was dracula was a long time ago that was the first theater that i did when i moved to la but I mean, we did it in Orange County, but um, that was fun. And then, no, I back when I when I left Baltimore for the first time, okay, um, back in in the late seventies, I moved to New York, and I I did a lot of downtown New York theater. Okay, um, I mean, there was a whole scene. There was a whole downtown theater scene, and I through uh, you know I, I had friends that that introduced me to. Um, People like um, John Vaccaro, who was, you know, I mean, these are legend legends of yeah. the, downtown, you know, New York scene. I I got I came in kind of late. This has been going on for a while. I can, but I got to work with Charles Ludlum. I did a, I did two plays with Charles Ludlam, who was absolutely brilliant. He was a, a writer, director, actor. You know, he wrote and directed nice. and all of his plays. And I got to do two shows with him, which was really I'm very grateful that what I What were was those
0: shows? And unless I mentioned them before, what were those shows?
1: Um one was called um oh wait a minute. Don't worry Love if you can't remember. I'm just Beb. and one was called Oh, I can't remember the other one, but it was better. Do you I, feel like there's
0: a there's oh sorry. Um do you feel like there's in terms of if you look at like theater compared to film do you enjoy one more than another or is it just a different experience
1: completely different experiences um i like them both i think one one of the great things about theater is that it's there it's immediate if you missed it you missed it one of the great things about film is it's forever right so you know they're they're they both have their Really specific pluses and minuses. Sometimes, you know, you on, in a play, it's not the greatest performance, but you get a second chance. You get to go back and do it again the next night. Yeah. Where in a film, you know, at hi honey, my husband hey. just came in. Thank you. No, they're done. Okay, I did off. it ages ago. Yeah. You're yeah. All right. Okay. Read your texts.
0: I <laughs> um, oh, love. It's nice. <laughs>
1: no he's but yeah we have cats and we have we take you know we have schedules with the cats so that's a lot yeah oh they're i love my what kind
0: of cats you have what are the names if you don't mind sharing
1: um one is walter he's our old one he's our old kind of he's he's in he's not going to be with us much longer i'm really sorry yeah it's sad he's got sort of dementia and incontinence oh, which no. is oh you know you can't kill a cat just because he pees on the rug but
0: <sighs> that should be that'll but, be on the great that'll oof. be on the great that'll be on the gravestone sorry not <laughs> to be morbid i'm sorry yeah
1: but, it, but and then we have another cat betty who is uh, we've had her for but she's she's also she's not young she's about eight we've okay. had her for a couple of years she's um, she's the boss oh, of it.
0: what is what kind of cat is betty
1: She's calico. Nice. And Walter's Walter's an orange tabby. Nice. Um, oh, they're they're my. Loves.
0: Do you, are you? What kind of cat parent are you, if I can ask?
1: Uh, I'm an indulgent cat parent, <laughs> actually, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, they 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 our cats have five meal services a day. Oh my god! No, no four. They have four meal services a day. They get breakfast. They have food out all day, but they they wake up when they when they wake us up, which is way too early. They get their, they get a breakfast service. Then they have food all day. Then they have their afternoon treats, and that's a very important part of their day. Yeah. And then they get their dinner, and then after, wait a minute, breakfast, breakfast treats, dinner, and then after we finish our dinner, uh, they get more treats.
0: When does the masseuse come into this picture?
1: <laughs> no, I am the. Masseuse there you yes. go yes and if a lap is available yes is nice yes. um i want
0: to get i want to kind of say when the music um but i do want to i would do you know it's up to you how much you want to talk about the music but i, I did i really love the album and i just
1: well that's fine uh you know that album that i made uh, it's amazing out, thank you it, yeah. it came out over 10 years ago and i haven't oh. done enough. so it's um All you right. know, my, my music career is <laughs> kind of stalled um you know when i go out on the you know when when peaches and i do our show that we're going to do this month we will both be singing but I i haven't been really working on music for quite some time okay i still like it i still like it but it you know i i love singing but it's um actually now my my music focus is i've been studying the piano oh wow and I started taking piano lessons about three years ago. And I study with a, a man named John Epperson, who was otherwise okay. known as Lipsynca.
0: Okay. Yeah, Lip a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's familiar. Lipsynca,
1: a very, um, very well-known drag yeah. performer. And um, he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Okay. And I, I still don't play well, but it's really fun to be learning how to play. I worked, I had some wonderful musicians.
0: Oh, well, that's, and I've listed some of them, but I want to start with Christian Hoffman. I see that you work with Christian, George uh, George Baby Woods, Brian Grillo. Uh,
1: Brian Grillo got me into music. Okay. It's a great story. Um, He called me up one day, or I forget how he contacted me, but I'd known him for a while. I like Brian very much. And we were friendly. And he said that he had written a song um, and he would like to know and he wanted me to perform it one day and, you know, out in LA we have they have these, you know, in the gay clubs, they have these Sunday afternoon beer busts. And he asked me if I would perform this song and he got, you know, put a couple musicians with me and and it was uh, and I did it and it was really fun and the audience was like, "Yay! this is great. More, you know, they wanted more and I said, well, yeah. I don't have it. I don't have any more. I only have this one song. Do you want me to do it again? <laughs> and
0: then, what was the song you they performed?
1: Yes, yeah. so I did exactly the same song. As what that. was the
0: song you? What, what was the song that you it did?
1: Was called, it was called "Falling Down" is good for the soul, and it's okay. It's, it's it's not never been recorded as far as I know.
0: I also found some Christmas song you made that I couldn't find recording of.
1: What's the oh? I, there was there's some Christmas lot.
0: thing that I thought you did that I found that I couldn't find a recording of.
1: I've, i There's a lot that I've done that was never recorded.
0: Okay um yeah. and you had like a, it seemed like you had an l you know, there was the uh la you had la musicians and you had baltimore and then um i looked up some of them uh i didn't i uh we'll get into that in a second but i know i guess like, it's scott wallace brown walker terrett uh skizz sick i didn't really get to look at Skiz-Sick. them too much. It was my drummer. sorry
1: yeah and glenn um, workman was my piano player i started with scott i started okay. in
0: about some of his musicians and what drew you to them and what they were about, if, you, if you're okay sharing Well,
1: that. I, I started with Scott and, um, you know, we just started fooling around a little bit. We didn't do any performances. And then he brought in uh, Skiz Cizek and Walker Tarratt. And so I had, and Walker, fabulous bass player, uh, you know, really, really good. And he played yes. upright for me. And then um, after a while, uh, Scott couldn't play with us anymore. So then Glenn came in. Glenn Workman came in and Glenn is gotcha. a, just, a, you know, a really fabulous piano player. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to continue working with Scott, but it, it just wasn't possible. So. Um, uh, but anyway, I was very fortunate. I was extremely lucky to have these musicians because I, I wasn't a musician. You know, I had a decent singing voice, right? But I couldn't read music. I didn't know music. I mean, they would talk about diminished sevenths and moving to the this right, and the right, that. Right, right, right. I'd have no idea what they were talking about. Right. Um, I can hear a tune and reproduce it vocally, but and I. And that's you know, a big
0: talent. That's a big. That's a big skill that I, I know. It, having a good ear to me is a huge talent as well. And a, a, a yeah, good, it's a nowhere pitch.
1: near perfect pitch or anything. Yeah. Like that, but it's uh you know my voice is pleasant i have a pleasant voice yeah I no, like you, very thing. good and, voice and i sing you know and i i think i sing well but it's um <clears throat> you know but their but their musicianship you yeah. know what really pulled them, really made the difference
0: were there certain vocalists that you kind of looked that you referenced or that inspired you in some way that you can mm, think about I,
1: no because um well yes i would say what's a julie london and peggy lee and the, you know sort okay of- and and Frank Sinatra and yeah. you know and, and um, uh, Johnny Mathis. I, I like you know Nat King Cole. I like the crooners. Gotcha. Yeah. I like a, the yeah. soft, you know, the soft vocalists. Um, and you know the the hardest part about singing, if you've ever been a singer, is projecting power without tensing your throat.
0: Right. Yeah, I've done my I've done my share musical theater.
1: Yeah, keeping uh, keeping your throat relaxed.
0: Yeah,
1: and you're you know keeping your your body and your and your all of this area relaxed while still, you know, having some control and power. This and I'm is, not talking about volume. I'm not talking about just yeah. loud.
0: No, I, but it, it, is there a difference in terms of like you recording versus performing oh my live? God.
1: I loved recording. I I absolutely loved it. The when we were in the studio, I was I was so happy being in the studio. Nice. What I what had happened primarily? There's there's one song on the record where the musicians and I were in the studio together, and that's the duet that I do with Artie Artie Hill,
0: Who's, who sounds like uh, what's his name, um, Tony Bennett, very much. A bit.
1: So. Yeah, my, it's and he, very
0: v- had that vibe. To,
1: he would love to hear you say that.
0: I will call him it. right now.
1: Yes. He's in Baltimore. He I wrote it.
0: strong Tony Bennett vibe.
1: <laughs> and uh um yeah, but he would love that. And he's a he's a writer, you know, he's he's got nice. several out So um uh but anyway, that was the only time that we had actually that the musicians and I were all working at the same in the same gotcha. t- the, in the same room at the same time. What I basically did was I had the vote that a, The uh, instrumental tracks recorded. The basic instrumental. And then I would work on the vocals myself, by myself at home. So that I I got to experiment with how exactly I wanted things done. I had the structure. I had, you know, I had the the metronomic structure in place. But I could weave in and out of it. And that was really great for me. And I smoked a lot of weed.
0: Did you, I don't know, I, I find this to be a unique thing with a lot of artists is, and I even my, for myself for editing the podcast, I can't listen to myself without wanting to strangle myself. Are you able <laughs> to listen to your voice and edit it and hear it and like it? I mean, you have uh, a good voice. Yeah, I just feel I, people have perceptions of that that don't make any sense sometimes. To me. I
1: can, I can. And, and one of the things about um, about you know being in the studio was that I, I did. I mean every note that is sung on that album is sung by me. Yeah. There's no auto tune, there's nothing except for what you know, the duet. But but not every take, but not every song is done right. in one take. You know, there's editing. There's there's gotcha. pieces, but it's um uh except I think I think bang bang I did all in one take. But it's but yes, I was able to control it. If I heard a note that i didn't like or if a phrase, if i didn't like the sound of a phrase i could go back in and fix it nice. i really i love the control yeah yeah of being in the, of being in the recording studio i love yeah. that i had a great um engineer
0: uh, i want to get into female trouble oh okay um, there's uh, i want to just go through the songs not maybe not all of them but just kind of briefly and then we'll kind of get into the show and call it a day but one of the things i heard a lot in the first song um are you a fan of Anne magnuson
1: yeah I do like your
0: version of female trouble sounded a lot it it felt like Anne. it sounded like Anne and that's to me and I'm not comparing you to her but that's you know very uh very good very sultry very well done um
1: thank you I really enjoyed Uh, that thank you um I was the first person that John allowed to record that okay and then once he allowed it he allowed me to record it then it, then other people could record it but forget you know. that
0: that's like one of the laws of of covering yeah. if you let somebody cover then you have to allow others i don't know if you have to allow everybody right. but conceptually you have to allow people to try you have,
1: yeah yeah if, if if you let if you let one person do it you 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 can no longer say nobody can do it
0: right um yeah. let's get the bang bang because i didn't i knew the song but i i did a translation which is I don't know if it was a good translation, but it's a very weird, it's much weirder translated, but like the history of that song, Sinatra, Cher, Stevie Wonder, uh, Terry Reed, Vanilla Fudge, Petula Clark. I mean, there's like a hundred, there's so many people that did that song. Um, does it really start off with, we, we we were barely 10 years old. All our games were the same. I
1: was, five, well, the, the, the Cher version is I was five and we, and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks. Okay. So, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I wish. Oh, I wish I'm not really prepared for this because someone gave me a recording of a French woman singing that song.
2: Okay. doing
1: it in French, and then she uh, her version was very different from mine. It was very slow and sultry and sad, and it wasn't as dramatic as mine, but it, it, it was very dramatic in a different way. And I cannot remember her name. Um, because i have a memory like a sieve but, you know, to, to make but i heard that and the, and when i first heard it i went i want to do this song one day and and I, and, I, and, yeah
0: and i think and, doing french was the way to go because you sound amazing in that and you know and again the translation doesn't doesn't hold up to the french <laughs> no, <laughs> it's
1: funny because when i when i performed it it's it, you know people will go that is so familiar. What is that? What is that? I know I've heard that before. And then when the bang bang comes out, they go, oh, right. right. That's what it is. So, you know, it, 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 it strikes a chord that people, you know, it's, it's kind of an unexpected little surprise. Yeah. I like it that it's in French. I, I it's used mean, it's to. it's really
0: the way to go. I, I just I was just curious what it meant, but I really I didn't mean to, you know, but I, I mean, the French, ver- the French version, the French version,
1: the French, the, the, the American, ver- the, the English version and the French version are very similar. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, they're similar, you know, I was in love with you and you left me, you know, right. you went away, gotcha. you fell in love with somebody else and I am bereft. That's, that's the, you know, the, the, uh, the overall meaning gotcha.
0: of it. Let's get to thank you, baby. I wrote down love song yeah. to a narcissist. Is that an <laughs> original song or is that, that is, is that a cover?
1: Um, Written by a a friend of mine named George Baby Woods, who was one of the musicians that I worked with in LA. Okay. And his writing partner, whose name was Lisa and I cannot remember her last name. Um the credits. No, on we, the
0: I don't remember. Don't worry about the names. We can yeah. just, you know, people will be forgiving.
1: Um but George Baby Woods wrote it and I used to I performed it in LA quite a bit. When i was doing shows out here i would perform it and it's um it is it's exactly a love song to a narcissist. <laughs> was
0: so, it a per, was i don't I, want to ask you personal but was there someone that you kind of felt based it on in some way everybody has everybody, to
1: say
0: everybody yeah okay.
1: everybody does
0: yeah um and then i listen to baltimore i'm like you know this is weird it has a randy Newman vibe and i'm like oh right and <laughs> I, I looked too. him up and then <laughs> it's written, and, and then uh, and your your, your your version is a lot is is a uh, very similar to his version but the Nina Simone version, is like a reggae song, which is yeah, was interesting is. as well.
1: Uh, hers is actually the first version I ever heard. Yeah, and, and I liked it. Uh, my version is a little bit different. My vocalizing, you know, my my, you know, I tweaked tweaked the vocals a bit. You know, that I've not actually copied Randy's.
0: It's closer to him. I'm not saying you copied. But, it's closer but, to him than it is to the closer. Nina
1: version. It is close. <laughs> and uh oh it's certainly closer to his than it is to hers
0: yeah yeah that's right that's that's what i mean i don't you know and again i don't bring these i don't know it's always weird when i'm bringing someone else up it's just more of like context than really like oh you're taking this from this oh i
1: like her version i like her yeah
0: it's interesting um waiting for the world is that a cover is that a cover
1: that's that's christian hoffman
0: oh okay (laughs) that one i wrote down uh religion uh there's a there's a lot of these religious um rock operas from the 70s and 80s and i wrote it's there's a musical that john phillips made i forget what it's called but it i wrote that like it's, it seemed like it came from a religious space rock opera that maybe the church uh, of later day saints might have produced <laughs> was, no
1: this was christian hoffman he wrote that one okay. and he wrote um god if any only knows he wrote both of those
0: um born of the rest of spirit i love that dave that, chappelle what a history! Yeah. He's, you know, I mean, I, I looked up some of the people you work with because I was like, holy shit! Like the musicians you work with have serious chops. Like the dude worked with Jerry Lee Lewis, Sam and Dave, Percy Sledge. Like, holy crap! Oh, you know?
1: he is amazing. He could yeah. just, he just, he came in. He just came in one afternoon and threw the through threw those guitar things on there, and it was just so much fun um, listening to him. And it, you know, because. Uh, now that's a song that I don't perform anymore. It okay. is so hard on me vocally. I can imagine. Yeah. That yeah, makes it's sense. Re- that's a re- that's uh, that's really tough. Uh,
0: what about um God of any? Is that is that? Um... That's
1: Christian Hoffman. Nice. Okay. Yeah, uh,
0: that's... I wrote and that with I a bit li- of. A sick- I
1: always yeah. liked it because it not because, you know, it, I I like the line. I tried to trust. I didn't know how. Yeah, I've always loved that song. I just always loved. I tried to trust. I didn't know how. I'm getting it now, you know. Because there's, there's, you know, you go through life and you make big mistakes and and things happen and then you think like you've got a glimmer of getting it, you know. And sometimes you are, and sometimes you're not. But, you know, but that feeling like, oh, okay, now I'm I'm kind of getting it. It and feels I, like that's, a
0: sequel to Thank You, Baby, in a certain sense. If if I'm looking at the album. as a a piece
1: i had never put Um, that together but yeah it kind of
0: is what well how did you connect with christian what was your connection with him because i know he was kind of
1: him at a party here in in la i met him at a party and he told me and i was just getting into performing just you know i didn't start performing until i was in my 50s okay so um I was just getting started in, in um you know musical performing and i met him at a party at a mutual friend's house and he told me he was he was a piano player or that he played piano and i said oh well, you should play piano with me and he said okay and i had no idea what his you know what his background was and when I when he, when we got together, I, you know, I looked him up. I was like, oh my god, I had. He's a
0: very unique. He's a very unique person. talent.
1: Yeah, he, he, he's a brilliant talent. He's got yeah. uh, he's got major chops. I have not seen him in a long time. Uh, you know, I live very quietly now, so I don't get. I out, but but um, I have huge imagine huge huge admiration for Christian.
0: Yeah, the only thing I want to bring up is um is this the musicianship of uh, Artie Hill and Michael eight, I'm going to pronounce it wrong again. Michael. Oh, you know, yeah. eight sick, eight sick. Is that right? Right. Sick. Those both, both, again, you seem to have, have attracted these really serious musicians out of Baltimore. And it's just really, um, it's, it, I love that you've, you know, work with these, because these are, these are serious, they, you know, as, as you are, to be honest, uh, what I've learned
1: seriously good. Yeah. Um, I had originally recorded that song as a single, not as a duo. Okay. A, and I didn't like it. I wasn't huh. happy. Um, you know, this is when I was working on the album. I had originally put it together as a, as a, as a, as a you know, as a solo and I didn't like it. And I contact, I I had performed a couple of times with Artie Hill. We, the first time we ever performed together, we did, um, baby it's cold outside.
0: (laughs) That's some age. Well,
1: yeah. And, uh, you know, and he was a sport and he he was just, you know, really great to work with. And, you know, so I, I contacted him and I said, would you be interested in doing a duet with me? And I sent him what I had done. Wow. And he said, this is, and he brought in Michael. He said, I think it should be, you know, so we got rid of the drummer. And we got rid of the piano. And all we had. Oh, well, so we, we kept Walker on the bass. Okay, so we had, we had the bass, and we had the the um, Michael right on the guitar. And then Marty and me, you know, doing the duet. And that was the time I told you that we were all in the same room. Right? That we all work together on the same day you know we put it
0: a... it's also a little odd that Artie has such a such a texas background It's such a country background because it doesn't come off in he's the a song lawyer. he's a lawyer
1: he's a lawyer yeah he's... well i mean
0: he's he's done some of you know uh i don't know it compares him to a guy clark Tom van zandt it compares him to a lot of uh yeah um... no
1: he's he's a he's a really he's a he's an amazing songwriter and musician he's really good Uh, He's got several albums, you know, he put out several albums. Um, Artie Hill and the Long Gone Daddies was, you know, his main group. But he's worked with, you know, um, Dave Dave Chappelle. And, um, you know, he's he's worked with Michael. But no, there's there's a serious group. You know, there's a group of musicians in Baltimore that are pretty serious. Well, Dave is actually out of Washington.
0: Okay. Nice.
1: But... um, you know he 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 does most of his performing washington northern virginia okay
0: but i want to I just you know respect your time and uh, i'm just curious on just the tour like what are you excited can you let listeners know kind of what they can expect without giving all of it away what are you excited about um i'm
1: excited, I'm excited. i haven't been out i have not been out performing in several years wow this this show is an updated version of a show that Peaches and I were supposed to do in London, oh wow, just at the beginning of the lockdown, and we were unable to do it because duh, lockdown. So uh, this will be our first venture out. Um, I mean, it's not that it's the first time we've been together because we have done. We were. You've
0: toured together before, right? I thought we
1: have. We've we've okay. done this show in an earlier version. Okay. In, uh, well, we've done it in Pittsburgh. We did it in Chicago. You know, we've done it in various places, and then. Um, and we were on tour together when we were promoting All About Evil. You know, we toured right. around the country, and he's—he's he's just, um, you know, I there there are people that I trust that I really enjoy spending time with, and that I trust, and he is one of them.
0: I can imagine. Yeah, I, I, I've known so, him as well, uh, but he is his gold.
1: But it's going to be kind of it, the show. It, it's physically challenging for me. Because it's a lot of traveling in a short period of time, a lot of yeah. traveling and performing in a short period of time, and you know I'm, you know, not a baby anymore, yeah. so you know I'm not a teenager, so I'm, um, but I think we're going to be fine, and um, I'm actually really looking forward to being able to spend this this quality time with him. We've spent lots imagine. and lots of time together, you know. He's he's a sweetheart i've been a little you know i've loved him forever i officiated yeah. his
0: wedding It's amazing i remember reading yeah. that um in yeah. knowing and knowing peaches joshua however you want to put it i don't know is there a good preferably inappropriate story you can share with us and le- to leave today just something that you know some <laughs> funny story or a weird story or oh, preferably, you know uh, story you wouldn't tell and normally
1: no, um
0: it's not it's okay but just, i
1: wouldn't tell the story normally
0: i wouldn't tell it anymore. i got you is there I some is there a moment of just you remember just you know, of just pure appreciation of something about was there a moment that kind of speaks to you in terms of all this working with that with him? Uh,
1: well I, I think I told you, you know, when I first met yeah. him, feel immediately at home. Immediately comfortable, immediate immediately, gotcha. you know, we were just he was just so sweet. And you know, we just I don't know. I mean
0: it's it's okay. I don't want to put you in the spot. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm just uh trying to find you know, it, this is all good. Um yeah. Yeah. I do I want you to get in touch when you finally have your uh keep when you have your piano album out in five or six oh, years.
1: If I ever do, it'll be first grade <laughs> songs performed by me. So because nice. I believe me, after three years, I am still working in the first grade music. <laughs>
0: it's the way to go. Um, yeah. This is just a, your, be your children's time. album because that's all you can perform. <laughs> <laughs> I've that's
1: actually kid songs. Thought that, that might be funny to put out.
0: That would First be hilarious.
1: Yeah, just, so.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. You're very generous. I really appreciate this. This is a huge this, honor for me. Really fun.
1: This was, and fun. I will thank see you, you in
0: Philadelphia. I will be there. So, okay oh, uh, yeah. be nice to meet yeah. you.
1: Okay, well, come up and see. please. You're going to come and say hello. I mean, have a great, great have person. a great
0: evening. Thanks again. it's right. really, really lovely to meet you.
1: Okay, take care.
0: Take care. Bye. Uh, I'd heard about Peaches Christ years ago from some of their Midnight movies Uh, I got to know them through their podcast that they do with Michael Varady called Midnight Mass which I highly recommend if you like this it's very similar kind of uh, lands of thinking deeper about these things I got to be a guest on um, Midnight Mass talking about Harold and Maude and it was so great to deal uh, to deal with joshua peaches and michael um such lovely people to get to know and i'm so happy i got to sit down with peaches christ and talk about their career and all their amazing stuff and then followed by this episode will be a short interview that i wanted to include with michael Verati since they host um midnight mass together which is an again amazing uh podcast i'll just give you the description here join cult leader peaches christ and filmmaker Michael variety for some hilarious and hardcore audio worship of their favorite cult movies. Each episode focuses on a unique film filmmaker, performer or genre and includes special guest starts, super fans, surprisingly befitting midnight movie celebration. Uh, go subscribe today at their, um, at, at anywhere you can find the podcast, midnight mass. And please stick around for Michael's interview. Um, we did the all these three of these. We did a little more as is, We're trying to have really more authentic conversations and not cut too much. So enjoy. Thank you so much. And again, please go see Mink and Peaches February tenth, East Coast. Um, again, Salem February fourteenth, Massachusetts fifteenth, Province, Rhode Island. Uh, Fe- February sixteenth, seventeenth, New York City, Green Room, uh, Province, Columbus Theater. Uh, Salem is Cinema S- Salem. Uh, Philadelphia, February 18th, 3 o'clock, Punchline, Live Nation. February 20th, Washington, D.C., The Comedy Loft. Please, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait to, I get, I get to go to two of the shows, and I, I can't wait. So once you listen to this, please, right, right when you're done, get some tickets. You we won't, we will not regret it. Thank you. said like if you were going to be in drag you would have gotten beat up i don't think people realize like at that time even in philadelphia if i went to my high school dressed as a punk even i would have got my ass kicked every day
3: right yeah i mean growing up in maryland uh which honestly at the time that i was a kid in the 80s i just was completely sheltered from anything that wasn't horror movies or Elvira. So I I just had to find queerness and otherness in, you know, horror and Elvira and, you know, idols like Pee Wee Herman and and Freddy Krueger. But uh, there was a movie being made when I was in junior high called Hairspray in Baltimore. And that movie was like a crossover movie. Uh, For the local media, you know, it was sort of like, oh my God, Sonny Bono is in Baltimore. (laughs) It was like this weird, you know, experience where like the local news was covering Hairspray. And that's how I first was introduced to John Waters was because I thought Hollywood was so far away. It, It was then that I realized, oh my God that person that woman playing this big girl's mom is a man named divine you know like what the fuck and my mind just exploded and and i was quickly led to discovering um you know pink flamingos and desperate living and uh you know it just changed my whole view of what one could be in maryland but in my world i i knew that i could never go to school in drag i could never you know be divine i had to wait till i like escaped catholic school in the catholic church to become peaches christ
0: and again you look at divine i mean there's no there's not many names that are more religious than fucking divine you know right right Which i love what i'm curious about is going back a little bit is i mean it's interesting because you know we talked about we're talking you know talked about midnight movies and you know really the birth of that seems to be really in san francisco but then you know, late night horror films, really, if you think as a kid, that's your midnight movie, even though it's on TV. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. on what some of the films, um, were that really like, even as a kid or as a teen, that really got you there that really like opened your world up for you. And, 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 you know, some, maybe just if you want to name some of what those were or some experiences with them.
3: I mean, absolutely. Like I can look back, uh, and, and and I've asked my parents, like, was I always like this? You know, like, what you know, because I get asked these questions in interviews and things yeah. and some of it I'm like, I don't know. I don't remember <laughs> the first time I was, you know, into dressing up for Halloween or, you know, any of that stuff. But my parents have said basically a- out of the womb, I was attracted to anything macabre, anything spooky. You know, Halloween was always something I was obsessed with. Like it just was the way I was. And at a young age, I started to sniff out, you know, what horror was and wh- what that could be. And one of the most impactful things I ever saw as a kid was um, Psycho. You know, okay. I saw it yeah. really, really young. And, you know, other kids were bored with it. By, by the time, you know, she's, you know, on the road, she's stolen the money, you know, before we get to the shower sequence, The basement, you know, in suburban Maryland where we were watching this movie, the other kids had all, you know, gone on to play outside and do normal (laughs) things like sports or whatever. And, you know, I was sitting there, you know, eyes wide open watching Norman Bates dressed as his mother stab this woman. And it was Oh, my God. I mean, just incredible. And I was even at that young age, I knew the music was great. I knew the titles were great. I knew it was a beautifully shot film, you know, And nice. I'm like ten years old or something, you know, and that that movie, and then very shortly thereafter, discovering this is crazy when I think about it, like how <laughs> young I was. but um seeing the Texas Chainsaw massacre, you know, at, how at, old were at you a, for that? Well, I was like, I don't know, 11 or 12, like, you know, when in the eighties and I think young people don't realize it now where they grow up with access to hardcore pornography, right? Like they grow up with access to everything because of the internet. But for us in the eighties, like their parents are still trying to be involved. Their, their, their parents are around, their parents are, you know, encouraging them, you know, almost, almost obsessively, you know, parents are obsessed with their kids these days. Our parents in the eighties did not, give a shit you know it was kind of like uh get out of the house and be back when the you know the the oh yeah 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 come on or whatever so we were doing god knows what in the woods you know in people's basements you know like watching whatever movies we wanted to watch so you know those movies were transformative and now i can see you know that things like my obsession with elvira you know led to um you know an interest that probably you know was drag adjacent you know Pee Wee Herman and Elvira were were hugely influential to me because they were these performers who I could see in movies, on TV shows, on Johnny Carson or David Letterman. Right. And that style of performance, I now kind of connect it to a drag character, but back then I just thought it was so I'm, cool that they could do all
0: this stuff. I mean, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is performance art in my opinion. Oh, it's amazing. I don't think I realized the influence it had on me until I got to, I got like I thought about him later. Um, what I'm curious to, to ask you about in terms of all these midnight movies and stuff, do you think it had to do with the advent of like a VCR where people weren't paying attention. Cause I know like we watched exorcist and Carrie when I was 11, like that shit. still. I mean, I should, I don't know if I should have been watching or not. I also loved horror stuff and I was obsessed with Nightmare on Elm Street for years, but I'm just wondering if it was just kind of like, Oh, it's a VCR and here's some movies they make. Like if that was part of it or was it something deeper? Yeah, I think,
3: well, we were one of the first, um, families in our suburban neighborhood to get, um, cable television i remember my dad was really wanting to get mtv and this was back when mtv um you know actually played music all the time and so the other thing we had was home box office and um hbo would play things like over and over and over again for a month and i remember you know (laughs) hbo would get something like poltergeist and you know for an entire summer you know in 1984 (laughs) us kids you know (laughs) would be in a basement watching poltergeist over and over again nightmare on elm street repeatedly same thing with the vhs tapes you know uh, so so we just had access it was this new access to media and movies um it, you know people don't remember like movies weren't in people's homes before this you know you might get like the wizard of oz screening on on television once a year you know cbs or nbc would but you know this was a new era the early 80s when we could bring home movies and yeah it was cool you know and and i i do think it was life-changing and i think a lot of us are super nostalgic for that period because it opened our minds
0: um you know i i kind of went through a lot of the episodes i was trying to tie some things together with you and mink and some comparisons and i kind of landed on like with the midnight mass can you just tell us folks that may not know midnight mass kind of what it is and you know um yeah. and, and how you and how you got to start vegas with vegas in space because i feel like that's to me is the best part of the podcast As you let you start with vegas in space
3: yeah so so midnight mass is currently a podcast that i do with my friend michael Veratti. Um, and, and the first episode we ever did was Vegas in Space, um, which is me in many ways. Michael loves that movie unapologetically. Michael came to Vegas in Space because he was a kid who grew up in Pennsylvania and became obsessed with trauma and all things trauma. And trauma was the distributor of Vegas in Space. Right, I, right. of course, discovered Vegas in Space through um, – trauma and um, USA up all night, but it was really it's really been my obsession with San Francisco and coming to San Francisco and something that drew me to San Francisco um, that made me realize that Vegas in Space is one of the many things that I'm lucky enough to be part of the legacy of, which I kind of go all the way back to the coquettes in the late 60s. And, you know, Midnight Mass in many ways, because it's a podcast now, it has a lot of to 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 be grateful for as far as the coquettes go because the coquettes did drag shows in a movie theater in San Francisco before screenings of midnight movies which is exactly what midnight mass the live event was and then i started to do lots of parody shows of cult movies which i l- later learned you know the sluts of gogo who are the stars of vegas in space doris fish Miss X. Outdoors. You know, okay. Yeah. They they were doing things like um, The Bad Seed or Valley of the Dolls. So I'm Peaches Christ in the world of Peaches Christ is so much about kind of arriving in San Francisco and sort of absorbing the uniqueness of what this drag scene was. And then yeah. kind of regurgitating my own version of it.
0: It seemed like you were drawn to San Francisco at some point, obviously being.
3: Yeah, kind being- of. Because- yeah john waters
0: right <laughs> believe so, it or
3: not john is the, the the person who put the seed in my little brain
0: I, I find it really interesting i think a lot about alter ego and it's almost impossible not to think about alter ego with Nick all with yourself with john waters and i'm wondering what i've noticed is some of the nicest people in the world can be the worst in terms of acting can be the meanest the craziest there's some kind of connection with Someone's ability to be kind—that almost like all the trauma they have dealt with—they're kind of putting out. It's like it's like the cycle of bullying. It's like you're bullied, and then you kind of get to act out this bullying, but but through through kind of through kindness. Does that make any sense? Like,
3: yeah, that make. I mean, I, I I think a lot of people misunderstand, and I'm not sure if this connects, but like what I've noticed is. So many of us that are attracted to horror and punk rock, you know, um, sentiment and, you know, being offensive and raw and outrageous and crazy and wild and, you know, angry on stage, let's say, or, you know, I love to play a villain. Um, it's because in many ways, and I, I remember Wes Craven talking about this, like Wes Craven was an incredibly gentle, sweet Person who had trouble dealing with the world. Right. And he made horrifying movies like Last House on the Left, which, I oh mean, God, if you I, think I on Elm Street is one. scary, oh really, you know, Last House on the Left is brutal. But it it's coming from this guy who was really having, you know, trouble dealing with the trauma of the world. And I totally relate to that. It's like I think that um so many of us that are these crazy, larger than life outrageous people on stage actually tend to be kind of sweet and sometimes even introverted offstage, you know, yeah. you know, and that that's true of me. My mother calls me um, an outgoing introvert. She said, yeah, you always, she's always, when you're being your truest self, I was more comfortable to sit in the corner of a room and kind of watch everyone, um, you know, but I also know how to like kind of turn it on and perform and kind of, you know, be a leader if I need to be.
0: What I'm curious about is in thinking about yourself in all these worlds, what healing has been able to be, happen for you through the through that like for you like how has if you look at yourself it's kind of this you know younger person how has peaches made a safe place for joshua is that if that makes sense oh my sense. god you know that no but it's something that
3: it, i mean honestly I've, I've talked about it a lot and i think it's because i didn't i wasn't in touch with this for years and years you know and certainly the evolution i mean Next year, 2025, will be my 30-year anniversary of Peaches. Um, You know, yeah. Like, I I started doing it, you know, in college in 1995 when I was in my senior thesis film. And then I haven't stopped. You know, I've been doing it all these years later. And what I was not at all in tune with for decades was how much the armor of Peaches, the facade of Peaches, the fantasy of Peaches really was... A way for me to explore like parts of Joshua that I had stuffed down that I had stifled, you know, that I had been ashamed of because I grew up, you know, a sissy who was bullied by a society and a church and a school group and a peer group who said you you shouldn't, you shouldn't hang out with the girls, you should hang out with the boys, you should do this versus that. All of that stuff is so interconnected. And, and in many ways, Peaches became this creative channel for me to unlock a certain kind of, well, expressiveness and creativity that, that I just don't think I would have unlocked if I hadn't you know, become Peaches.
0: Yeah. I, when I think about movies, I don't know if you think about this or not, but I think some of my favorite movies aren't necessarily my favorite movies, but they're my favorite movie experiences. I can't figure out in terms of how you know your time and, and age, where you enter the world of midnight movies? Well, I
3: mean, you know, I was a fan of these kinds of movies um, ever since I discovered them. But to to sort of explain sort of what led me to creating Midnight Mass, it really was you know being a fan of uh, Rocky Horror screenings, you know, in high school, and yeah. you know, and John, and discovering John Waters, sort of being cheated out of. Uh, the, the 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 heyday first, of the
0: first wave
3: yeah like like I knew about all these amazing programs that had existed and they just weren't happening when I was living in San Francisco so I was running a movie theater I was running an old single screen movie theater in my early 20s like that was my job and um and so I went to Landmark Theaters who was the company that was you know employing me and who basically le- le- had the lease on this building and and um, hired me as a as a baby manager and said, "I want to do a midnight movie series and I want to host it as my drag alter ego, wow. Jesus Christ." And I want to do you know different pre shows before movies. And they were like, "That will never work. That's ridiculous." You know, like midnight <laughs> movies hope. have been relegated to the suburbs, and which was true. Like urban. Um, uh exhibitors weren't doing rocky horror anymore rocky horror was something in 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 the suburbs at that time um in college towns and uh i just begged i was just annoying you know i was young and naggy and annoying and um and i think finally they were like okay we'll we'll let you try and one of the things that i sort of pointed to was that on the landmark theater's uh website at the time They had um talked about the company's success was built on the popularity of them doing midnight movie screenings of Pink Flamingos and uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead. So I right. was able to say, Hey, you guys are hypocrites. <laughs> you have this on your website, you know. Yeah. And so they let me do the first season of what Midnight was Mass. It, what was
0: your so let's 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 tie people back to Midnight Mass because I don't know. It's funny when I I didn't know who you were for a while. I mean, I knew who you were, but I didn't know exactly. And there was something you did and I can't fucking remember. But I was like, oh, I needed that. I I think I found about seven years ago. I'm like, I need to meet this person. And it was something around Midnight Mass, a live thing. What were some of the early ones you did, if you can share? The
3: first one we ever did was Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Kills which is the Russ Meyer film. Um, and and years later, I was able to actually work with and feature Tura Satana on stage. And she and I went and did shows together. But, you know, when we started, it was 1998. Okay. You know, I, was, I was in my early 20s. And, um, you know, I was like 24. And I was running this movie theater. I didn't know what I was doing um, but yeah, the first season was Faster Pussy Kill Kill, um, Showgirls. I was nice. like, you know, uh, very early adapter of Showgirls, uh, with free lap dances with every large popcorn. <laughs> that was our that was our gimmick. Um oh Female God. Trouble, uh, of course, the John yeah. Waters film. Um, The Bad Seed we did. We did William Castle's homicidal. Um, and we also did some stuff that just didn't work. Like I remember we did um Gus Van Sant's To Die For and nobody showed up, you know, just, it was like, I, you know, I love that movie and I thought it was great, but, you know, I was sort of learning how to be a programmer at that time.
0: Um, what, I, what I'm curious about is where, like, did you have knowledge of the cats Like, where was your history? Because obviously you're bringing these films that are important and classic. Where did you learn what to show? Where, where did you pick up what was important? And, and did you know, did, had you studied kind of the world of, uh, San Francisco midnight movies and, known, and knew the history.
3: Yeah, kind of. I I, I think because I was so into uh, old movie theaters and also f- collecting these calendars. And and when I moved here in in San Francisco, like the Castro Theater, the the Red Vic movie house, the Castro Roxy Theater. Cinema. They they were all still repertory houses and they had they put, nice. put out calendars. So, you know, it was such a great time. Um, midnight movies didn't really happen as much, but repertory cinema was alive and well. Nice. And and it was so cool. And it was, you know, it was just a, a rich um, place. So I was I was absorbing as much as I could. Like there were certain things when I moved here I'd never even heard of. You know, I remember seeing Grey Gardens. Um, for the first time at the Castro Theater and it was like sold out and someone said oh my god I gotta go see this movie you know or like seeing Harold and Maude at the Red Vic you know things that I'd never seen before so I was kind of like a student of it all but before that I was um, you know basically obsessed with John Waters and I like you know read all of his, you know, writings and he had a book called Shock Value and, and Shock Value talked about Russ Meyer and his obsessions with um, Herschel Gordon Lewis and um, you know, all of this stuff. And I, you know, was obsessed.
0: But then I'm like, music, Little Shop, Phantom of the Paradise, Rock and Roll High School, Shock Treatment, Cabaret, Priscilla, The Apple, Wiz, Howard and Mott. To me these are, you know, music musical music either theater or musical. I'm curious on you know, she sings. You sing together. I'm curious. On was there some theatricality coming into all this for you as well through the midnight? Were you were you finding your voice in theatrics through doing these midnight movies? And was that and, and where was that coming from? And and I'm just wondering and how that gets you take me there to how you start interacting with Mick.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The first, the very first. Um time we ever had a special guest come to my Midnight Mass movie event, the in-person event, was Mink Stoll back in 2001. And so I was, you know, uh, nervous and had gotten an address to um, her manager, uh, an email address, and I sent uh, a very gushy um, fan-filled, you know, fan-written letter um, asking if Mink Stole would ever agree to come and be worshipped, you know, at midnight mass in San Francisco, and that was the first ever idol worship show we did. It was called Idol Worship Mink Stole, and that was before a screening of uh, Desperate Living. Nice. And Mink came, and um, we had a huge banner that we put up across the the, the stage that said, "Hail Mink." and then um we built a robotic effigy of peggy gravel who was stirring um a, a vat of rabies is, she's well, from desperate living okay, and she sorry, becomes I'm not. The evil, gotcha. yeah she becomes the evil queen at the end and she stirs and makes a vat of rabies in um in a cauldron like the evil queen from um snow white and so we made this robot and we had um big giant paintings of mink and mink came in and and san francisco gave her you know a huge standing ovation and the bay area reporter wrote um, a newspaper article um basically the headline was really directed i think towards john and it said give us back our mink um you know because mink had had been getting these smaller and smaller parts in the newer feature films you know like pecker and um, right be demented and stuff so um she of course was someone i idolized and we put on this show and we did an interview and we screened desperate living and then afterwards she sent me a really nice gift and then we just sort of stayed in touch and then i asked her if she wanted to do it again and we did another show and then we did another show and um you know they were before screenings of movies and then you know eventually um i invited other people to come uh, and do the shows, Tara Satana and Elvira, John Waters, you know, Mary Warnoff, uh, oh, wow. you know, that the Linda Blair, the, the cast of beyond the Valley of the dolls. I mean, it really mink is the reason, you know, I was, I had the courage and the confidence to sort of do those kinds of events where I got to put people on stage. And now that list of, of sort of idols I've gotten to to work with, you know, people from Rocky Horror, you know, I've done it with Pam Greer or whoever, Loris Leachman, you know, it's surreal, you know, all these people I've gotten to work with, but I really think it's because of Mink. And so now doing the cabaret show that we take out on the road, it's sort of like we've, we've abandoned the screening. And now we just do a full two woman, you know, show about our friendship and our love for each other and my fandom of hers. And then, just sort of like the past 20 odd years you know
0: and it's you as a fan and the fact your work you, you use worship as a verb what is the gift you're giving to these people what is what is the impetus what is it what is at the core of it what is the what are you trying to give to people through this
3: what I feel like my job is as peaches and like yourself when you talked earlier about um feeling like the cinema for you is the closest thing to a real church. I mean, that is completely where the name Midnight Mass comes from. For, for me, it's yeah. about finding fellowship with other weirdos who all want to gr- gather together to worship the same thing. The yeah, reality, okay. especially today, now more than ever, all of these films are available for you to watch online or at home or whatever. There's a power to getting in a building and a space with people who also love the same thing and experiencing that thing together. And so when I bring one of these guests, I feel like as the as the cult leader, you know, quote unquote, it's my job to channel sheer love and adoration and really appreciation um from the audience through peaches onto this person so really like john one time described it to someone else i asked john to invite someone on my behalf i think it was ricky lake i did a show oh, with nice. ricky lake years ago and i i i know that you know I've, i don't ask john for a ton of favors but of course this made sense because yeah. it was ricky lake and i never met her and i said well what did you tell her and he goes I told her it was an evening of gay worship (laughs) and I thought, okay, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. You
0: know, I have a Jewish mother, which Uh is, which is, you know, good and bad. I'm wondering if you have an, I mean, you're not, you're not Jewish, but what is like, how are you making these people feel at home? What is them? I don't know what we call, I mean, you know, if you're in drag and you're, you know, maybe you're a mother, I don't know. What are you doing? How are you making these people feel at home? What is that process like for you? It's
3: different for all of them. I mean, it it, it really, you know, with different guests and different uh, personalities, you know, I've had to kind of um, navigate it in, in different ways. The biggest thing I think I do is um, channel that love of the audience. And also really, I'm not afraid to be a fan. You know, I, I'm both, um, I'm both, A business person and a a producer who's trying to put on an event so i have to speak to them and their managers professionally but i also let them know like i am a fan i love what they've done yeah i really really appreciate it and you know i don't sort of try to act like oh you know like I just am cool. And we're just, (laughs) we're just friends, you know, Like, like, they all know that like I'm a fan and that, that, that their work has influenced and affected me in such a way that it's, it's helped me, you know, become whoever I am with different people. It's different things. I mean, there are some, actually Linda Blair was one of the most challenging I've ever had because, you know, Linda, Linda was very, very guarded. And she, and I met her as Joshua And, um, and, and, you know, I found out from someone that after she had met me as Joshua and I left the room, she said, wait, that nerd is peaches Christ, you know, which Uh, is like, you know, and and she was definitely like, not totally into being there. Like I could feel the edge. mm, Right. And, um, Mm, and then she said something to me like, well, I don't want to talk about the exorcist, you know? And I was like, what, you know, like, what are you talking (laughs) about? Like, what do you think? You know, what What
0: are we here for?
3: Yeah. I mean. We're only gonna to to talk, to talk about, about the roller
0: skating movie. Only what's what's the roller skating movie she made? Roller boogie. We're only gonna do roller boogie. Uh, yeah. Only was roller she, boogie.
3: Which was, is actually yeah, what she on. wanted to talk about was her animal rescue. You know, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough.
0: It's you a know? hard sell to it. It's a hard sell to a drunk crowd right. at, like at a midnight movie. movie. <laughs> yeah.
3: So what happens is I get on stage as Peaches, I do this whole um opening number that was actually a roller boogie meets the exorcist disco song called let peaches Funk you oh my god we had like you know it's amazing people on roller skates dressed as linda blair from the exorcist you know it was just so stupid and so over the top and it's on youtube if you you know you you youtube look up let peaches funk you you'll see it So there's Linda watching this (laughs) ridiculousness, and then she comes out on stage looking so adorable and so sweet, and Peaches is all insane, dressed up as a priest, and then Linda proceeds to give the most incredible interview, so Um. lovely, talks all about The Exorcist, completely talks about the trauma of The Exorcist, the injury of her back, the the way they took her mother away, what they did on the set. I mean, it was amazing i get off the stage her manager says to me she's never i've never seen her give that kind of interview and i said to him i don't i don't know i don't know well great i it was amazing i love her and linda and i stayed in touch and what i realized later was i as peaches christ got to be the freak in the room and she got to be be the beautiful actor who played the devil As, as versus, remember, when you talk about The Exorcist, do you use the word do people say Reagan or did they say Linda Blair? Everyone right. equates her with that movie and being the devil to the point where I think her animal rescue in many ways is is kind of like saying, like, I'm not this thing. You know, like I'm interested in helping people and helping things. She, yeah, I, it was I'm, it was a different kind of experience. Yeah. I'm not saying that Linda Blair, but I think Peaches gets to be the yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah. I get to be the butt of the joke. Right. They also. Sometimes they're guarded because drag queens can be cunts, you know. And I, I you know, I, <laughs> that's what we're I gonna call this episode. To, yeah, I, I tend to use yeah, that's the, the title of the, the drag episode. Queens can Christ, drag queens can be cunts. Drag queens can be cunts. But I tend to uh, look like I would be because if you see pictures of Peaches ahead of time, I might be licking a bloody right. knife or crawling out from a tombstone or whatever. Um, but then when you meet me, you realize I'm just a big goofball who's just sweet and wants to just make you feel comfortable you know so so it, it's different for every guest i guess you know and not I'm, all of them have fallen in love with me but luckily i've had a a, a better track record of, of you know being friends with the people and them enjoying yeah. the experience
0: how how do you channel kindness into people that are, have been through some shit and if you do you feel like you have natural skills to kind of do that whether it's you or peaches i mean
3: sometimes you know um yeah yes and 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 i think a lot of it is related to being peaches in a sense because while i am wearing all that crap and in a way it's 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 armor there's also this sort of vulnerability to it because it is so silly and it is so ridiculous and it is in a sense um a way of telling whoever like i am here to laugh at myself way more than i'm i'm going to try to laugh at you and also on stage, I, I've never been someone who like and I've seen this sort of moderation where you, you have this special guest and then someone um, who's interviewing them, who's also a comedian or um, you know notable for whatever reason. and you always can tell when that person who's conducting the interview wants to you know get their laughs, you know and get their get their their wit or their their <sighs> smart you know their smarts in whereas I'm like, no, no, no. I am here to listen to you and to present you and if I can get the audience you know laughing and I, I think that you know these most of these people are professional entertainers so they can like you say they you, you know how you were saying you can kind of suss people out they definitely can suss people out you know most of them have been, are veterans in the business and they've seen it all so um you know but some of them it takes some of them, it's an, an immediate um, sort of—I uh, don't know—chemistry that's lovely. It's always nice when it's immediate. And some of them, it doesn't happen until we're on stage. I'm in drag. They see. They experience the San Francisco Peaches Christ audience. You know that, and then and then they you know can kind of relax and enjoy it. I mean Maxwell Caulfield, who is oh yeah yeah Grease yeah, too, yeah, right who, yeah yeah we we did Grease too. The whole time, I felt like he was uncomfortable in (laughs) doing the interview. And after the interview, I said to him like, Oh, God, I I hope it didn't go on too long. He's like, I actually thought it would be longer. And I said, Well, I I sort of cut it short a little bit, because I wasn't, I, I just kind of said it to him, like, I wasn't sure if you were comfortable. And he said, Peaches, I am so sorry. I am so used to British drag queens. And I was just expecting you to just take the piss the whole time. And he was like, I was so ready for you to just, you know, kind of pull a a whatever, a Dame Edna and just make fun of me or whatever. So he was kind of He was like on stage baffled because I was just talking about like, oh my God, you know, people talk about, you know, Grease 2, you know, not being a good movie. I think it's better than the original and the audience would cheer and, you know, and I would, I would, swoon over how handsome he is and you know and you could tell he was just kind of looking at me like what is happening why aren't you yeah. ripping me to shreds
0: <laughs> I'm, wonder- I'm wondering in this process how being a fan helps and how being a fan hurts these relationships mm. yeah we, uh, we can know we can just get into the helps we don't need to get into the hurt so much but um with
3: all of these people it's different i think one thing that's been um Nice for me is, is early on, especially like I hosted John Waters' biz- uh, visit at Penn State, like selfishly as oh, a nice. student, you know, I put together a whole package to bring him to Penn State, which meant I got to hang out with him and and he was the one who told me about the coquettes because I moved to San Francisco. You know, because I was obsessed with Tales of the City, John Waters told me about the Cockettes and the Cuchar Brothers. There was no Cockettes documentary. The real world um, had just aired and it was about San Francisco. So I was like, I'm going to San Francisco. And uh, I thought I would be here and then I would move to LA or New York. Um, when I was hosting that visit with John and not that we stayed friends. I was just a college kid who hosted this.
2: We we didn't
3: get to be friends. Actually it was because of Mink, you know, I think Mink giving the seal of approval that I was actually invited into John's world, you know? Um, But it was at that visit that I realized, even spending some time with him um, on campus and sort of seeing how people thought they should you know be in front of john waters or mink stole um meaning if you really listen to what they're saying they are not the people in their movies they are they are a writer and a director and an actor and so john had t- been telling the story about how a woman pulled out her tampon at a at a meet and greet and asked him to sign it you know and his thing was just kind of like you can't shock me you know that you're just annoying at that point. And I remember listening to that story thinking, right, let them, they make the movies. They're the actors. They did not come here so that you could perform for them. Right. You know? So when people walk up to mink stole and say like, you know, there are just two kinds of people in this world. Uh, I'm like dying inside, you know? So if any of you, yeah. If any of you listeners are coming, certainly when she's on stage and we're doing those lines, join in. Yeah. You know, when you meet her, say hello, shake her hand, treat her like a human being. Because <laughs> you know, in the people that always are the first to jump up for the Q and A's, they're always the last people in the room that should be
0: asking the questions. I want to kill these people. Yeah. Um. All right. I'm curious on your knowledge of the Kuchar's and your knowledge of John's influence, I I mean,
3: m- my understanding is probably not that much deeper than yours uh, because, you know, I've ju- it's just through stuff that I've read. And what okay. I think is, and I could be wrong, but I think there was this sort of like symbiotic mutual kind of fandom and adoration, not just with John. Like, for example... I, you can look at the Kuchar brothers and see how John was influenced by Kuchar brothers' you right. know, films. And then you can also look at Kuchar brothers' movies and see how they were influenced by John's films. And same thing with even Andy Warhol, where you know John was completely inspired by the factory, the idea of the factory, You know, he, he, him naming those Baltimore freaks the dreamlanders but then later in andy's career after john has made pink flamingos and female trouble you know um andy warhol puts out the movie trash and you know it's like wait that's andy warhol now is doing john waters you know uh, via paul morrissey you know so it's this this uh this weird thing where they start sort of like it's a fascinating time they all sort of started to like inspire and influence each other even the coquettes the coquettes are in 1969 they're making short films like patricia's wedding and and doing weird shows you know at at, at the the palace theater and yeah. john and his gang are making stuff i mean remember this is way before the internet so they're making stuff in baltimore you know they don't know about each other you know so they're all kind of coming up and and making this weird shit in the zeitgeist around the same time you know
0: when i was thinking about like you know i was thinking about the cock catch i was thinking about john waters i'm like oh it's just a different it's a east coast west coast version of taking a lot of acid and making art (laughs) (laughs) And,
3: and and kind of um Uh, rejecting in in many ways sort of the ideas about what it meant at the time to be quote unquote homosexual you know they they were all embracing these sorts of um outrageous kind of they were kind of giving the middle finger I mean in many ways I feel like John you know was making fun of hippies and and the cockettes were making fun of hippies while also kind of being hippies if that makes sense you know yeah
0: yeah and I I mean I I don't know. One of my you know, I love Trisha's wedding because I f- fucking Richard Nixon watched that because he he was scared to not watch it. But, and they showed it at the White House. How does that it's fucking crazy. happen? All right, it's let's go crazy. to Mink cuz I feel like we're we're kind of running out of time and I want to yeah. keep you know, keep to this um All right. So I'm curious. I want to know more about your relationship with Mink how it kind of came to be. Um was it, you know, we talked before about like the reality of a person versus the persona. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to, to? did you have to kind of redefine who Mink was from growing up with that? Did you have to kind of, ha- and, and I'm just curious on like, I want to hear about the show. I want to, as much as you want to talk about developing, I'm just curious on your connection. It seemed like there's, you know, she, I didn't realize how amazing with a voice, like I, you know, I'm always worried about when someone's like an actor, oh, I make music. I'm always like, eh, but hers yeah. music is is, is, is amazing. And I, and I heard you sing in some of the clips I watch on YouTube. So like, tell me about the world's... The world that you both inhabit, that you're creating this piece together, if if you can.
3: So a couple things, and I think I can kind of speak to it um, succinctly. One is that, you know, growing up and I call it the John Waters immersion period where, you know, I was so obsessed with those movies, especially those early movies. You know, everything, um, you know, multiple maniacs through, um, you know, polyester um, where like mink and Divine and Edith Massey to me were like the holy triumvirate of, of superstars who would show up in these movies and, you know, especially Mink and Divine. I mean, the way they would deliver these insane lines that John would write was just so over the top and so delicious. And they were so brilliant at it that it wasn't just me. It was any sort of weirdo queer that discovered these movies. You know, we were like saying those lines. They were, they were imprinted into our brains. These amazing lines of dialogue with amazing over the top, insane delivery. We can see Thousands, if not millions, of other movies that were made low budget with amateur quote unquote actors whose whose performances are completely forgettable and we are not yeah. talking about them today. And people have not memorized the lines and delivered the lines over and over again. Like I said, I just put up that clip of her on um on my Instagram of her saying, I wouldn't suck your lousy cock if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. It has more views. <clears throat> You know, the two viral clips I've ever had are with Mink Stoll. The one is that one that has now over 7 million views. You know, because if you were an amateur actor who didn't know how to deliver that line, that clip would not go viral. These performers were incredible, especially her and Divine. They were brilliant. They had star quality. Yeah. And quite frankly, when I started doing Midnight Mass, sadly, Divine and Edith Massey had already passed away. And Mink was was here and I was able to put on a show for Mink. What I did not realize that the flip side of that is it wasn't until years later that Mink said to me, you were the first person to honor me solo, meaning it was the first time she'd been honored without Divine and Edie or without John, you know, where it was the two of them. And that meant something to her. Now, yeah. I didn't know it at the time. It wasn't until later. And she and I were doing more of these events regularly. And she got to see that people have mink stole tattoos. Yeah. That people want to hear mink stole talk. That people are are obsessed with her, right? So, you know, but my relationship with her, obviously, it became more and more comfortable and more casual over the years. but. Many steps. The first time I made a movie and asked Mink Stoll to be in a movie of mine. So we're, we're was... t- are we
0: talking about All but, e- uh, All but Evil?
3: Yeah. The feature. What was the it first... like
0: to, I don't mean to kind of, what was it like to direct, <laughs> d- directing her? How did that How did that affect your relationship?
3: It was intense. It was scary. You know, I was directing um, three women who I admired greatly. One of whom was Mink Stoll, who had been directed by my ultimate idol, John Waters, in every single film he'd ever made. Every feature film she's been in. Um, the other was Elvira, who I was directing out of drag, right. and she wasn't really that comfortable being out of drag. The last time she'd been out of drag was for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So she was kind of stressful. And then I was directing Natasha Leone, who at shit. that point had already been directed by Woody Allen. You know, So it was like, um, as a first-time filmmaker making a feature film... Um, I think especially Mink. Mink is intense. I mean, I will say this. Mink does not not suffer fools. You know, the the, the thing about Mink is like she's seen it all. She's done it all. She is a sweet, lovely lady. But if you rub her the wrong way, you're going to know it. If you annoy her, you're going to know it. What was amazing was like on the set, you know, if the crew, if we were running late or anything like that, she would, you know but you know she could yell i remember she doesn't fuck around yeah 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 she doesn't fuck around people it's, from you know a, a hardcore school of filmmaking
0: i think a lot of people like that get bad reputations because they're just really serious like Manny potemkin gets a lot of shit like that because he's people don't want to fuck around they're like i'm here to work i'm prepared yep. and, I, and i feel bad for people that get a bad rep because they're just trying to do the best they can
3: oh yeah i mean she she is just, and she is lovely and sweet and yeah. wonderful. And, and and so I feel like over the years, the other, I was going to tell you the other viral video clip if, to kind of come full circle is, is a clip of, of she and I and my husband where she's marrying my husband and I. And the, you know she was the officiant at our oh, wedding. Oh, holy shit, wow. Yeah, yeah, and, but the clip went viral because I dressed up my four and a half year old nephew to be the <laughs> ring bearer as Michael Myers because he's obsessed <laughs> with Michael Myers. So what's hilarious is the clip is viral because, oh, isn't this cute? This little kid is Michael Myers at this gay wedding. Um, and then every, every fifth or sixth comment is like, that lady looks like Mink Stole. <laughs> <laughs> you know she's oh hilarious
1: and but I, yeah you we should,
3: know, so just to say that she's become a huge part of my yeah. professional life but also my personal life you know like she married us you know
0: yeah um if you can imagine let's just say you're you have a trilogy of films with um all but evil being the first what are the where would you place her in the next two theoretically if you
3: were to movies? make
0: another two movies with her as an actress, oh. what would you imagine those being, and where would you put her?
3: Oh, gosh. I don't
0: know. I like the know, that I, they I have to be say- a trilogy. I don't know why I'm making this a hard question. I want them to be yeah, a trilogy. Yeah, yeah. They yeah, don't the, have to be related the, necessarily, but they should, be a, they should be a trio.
3: You know what's interesting? <laughs> and And I think about this sometimes. When I wrote All About Evil, I didn't write any of it for anyone in particular. So it wasn't until I was done where I kind of was looking at it going like, I mean, because I remember the casting director and even producers saying, why would you ask Cassandra Peterson to play the mom in this movie? And it's like, I was friends with Cassandra at that point, you know, and I saw her out of drag being a mom, you know, and- and, and it was like, oh, no, I, I can totally see this. And there wasn't really a, a, a goth lady role for her to play. Like she, pulls, it, she
0: pulls that part off very well. I think so, too. And, yeah. you know,
3: with Mink, it was just sort of the, the idea, of me, to me, of her playing like a mouthy, loud librarian was just funny, you know. Yeah. So yeah. It, 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 I don't know. I, I think what I'll do
0: is I have a couple. Let's just tracks. pick one movie. What would it, what would you If you wrote a movie for her, what would, where would it be? Where, where, where would it be around? Well, just, I, I'll make it one. I'll make it easier for you.
3: Yeah, I would love to do one that's like, you know, in in and, and, and th- this this uh genre of film has a a very un uh flattering um name, but there is this genre of film called the psycho biddy movie or aka the hag movie. movie okay. where you know, in 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 the days of Sunset Boulevard and then really seriously with whatever happened to Baby Jane, there sort of was this movement giving birth to, um, featuring older actors, actresses primarily in horror movies, um, lady in a cage, hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, Watcher like,
0: watch in the woods,
3: all of that. Right. <laughs> like, yes. You know, um, what did we Sorry. just, we did, we did, we just did, um, whoever slew Auntie Rue on our, on our um, Patreon, you know, these amazing Shelly Winters, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, like making these incredible movies like straight jacket, you know, and I love all those things. I would love to do something like that with like Patricia Quinn, Cassandra Peterson, Mink Stoll, you know, really have them play, you know, some sort of evil older women doing horrifying stuff. So that would be my answer.
0: Tell, Tell us about what we can expect if we come to see the show. I think uh, if you
3: come and see this idol worship show, especially if you've seen um, a version of the show before, because we have been doing this show for years. um, One thing I can guarantee you is that we're doing um, a bunch of new numbers. I've written a new opening song. We're actually featuring some new video clips. And because she and I, Mink Stoll and I have, um, you know, kind of a life together in a way. And we share a lot of personal stories. The stories will be different. If you haven't experienced the show before, it's all of that plus celebrating this iconic woman. So as a fan, I am not going to let you down. If you love Connie Marble, if you love Peggy Gravel, you love Dottie Hinkle, don't worry, you know, because it's the kind of show that Mink would never do solo. Mink would never say, hey, do you guys remember how awesome it was when I cussed out (laughs) Kathleen Turner, you know? Um, You know, so, but I can say that and I can get her to talk about it. So it's very much a, It is a cabaret show about two friends, but it's also about the fandom I have for Mink. You know, so that that's really what it is. And it's it's short and sweet. You know, it's it's not too long. I fucking hate how long everything is now. I think movies are too long, you know, theater is too long. So, you know, we do a tight 90 minutes. Right. <laughs> you know, there's no intermission, you know. Um, so it, it's it's I think it's a sweet show. And if you buy the meet and greet ticket, obviously you get what everyone wants, which is a photo with me and Mink still. Let's, um, um, yeah. let's 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 oh, yeah with- the city oh, sorry. sorry oh yeah uh, cities we, we, yeah we start in san francisco but san francisco those two shows are already sold out which is crazy holy shit
0: it's a m- yeah congratulations, th- th- th-
3: thank you then we go to the east coast and this is where we're still um selling tickets uh salem massachusetts on uh on valentine's day february 14th okay uh then providence rhode island on the 15th then new york city on both the 16th, 16th and the 17th then a matinee show in philadelphia on the 18th which is hilarious but i'm kind of like oh we get to do a matinee i love it yeah um and then we go to dc on the 20th
0: i want you to leave this i want to i want you to i want you to leave with one story about mink over the years that's that is memorable for you it doesn't have to be the top one just something that you know a, a story that's memorable that maybe you haven't shared before that relates to mink
3: i think probably one of the most memorable stories i i have um with mink stole is how great she was when i decided i wanted to do A William Castle style rollout for All About Evil. Do not do this. It was very, very hard. (laughs) I decided, like, you know, talked landmark theaters into letting me go from city to city to city to city, where we did a Peaches Christ uh, movie screening. And that's how the movie All About Evil opened in a, I think it was like 18 markets in North America. Holy shit, that's amazing though. And Mink. You know, some of them came with us for part of it. Thomas Decker came on a few. Natasha came a few. Cassandra came for a few. But Mink was in it. Like, she was on tour with us. And she was rad. And, like, she was just... I don't know, like just so lovely and just so easy, you know, to get along with. And she would she would do the show. And I don't know. I I, I, that's not really a specific memory. No, 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 no,
0: no. That's fair. fair. I'll never
3: forget that experience. And, And, you know, it was just it was awesome.
0: I mean, I think stories really communicate moments. And I think that's a really nice moment.
3: Yeah, she completely was like, you know, like we flew coach. We would rent shitty cars. It was like being in an indie rock band, you know, doing that tour. And funnily enough, I I couldn't afford to bring, um, you know, a cast of drag monsters, which we needed in every town, so that we worked with different local drag communities in every city. Nice. And when we went to Milwaukee, we worked with a very uh uh, uh sort of ridiculous rocky horror picture show cast who helped us put on the show and they were fabulous and there was an 18 year old sort of ingenue who was very talented and and both mink and i really took to her oh, and nice. uh, her name was trixie mattel and she was 18 years old yeah and so she went on to become a well she's just a big famous superstar now which is
0: this is thank you so much this was really i just this was really this is a hit on my like everything i love about what you're doing, and I, you know, I don't know, it was very exciting for me to kind of do the research and talk to you about this. Thank you so much for your generosity and your time. Thanks for having me. Hey, welcome. This is the portion with Michael Varadi. We're going to speak to Uh, Filmmaker, screenwriter, columnist, pretty much known for working in the horror genre and then also um, dealing a lot with queer horror overall in their career. They run a really amazing podcast with Peaches Christ called Midnight Mass. Um, You can find it's very in tune with what we're doing here uh, with our podcast. And and they were so good to me when I was a guest on their podcast speaking about Harold, Harold and Ma that I really wanted to have interview both of them. And it was so great, great to do that. I'm glad they're all together. Even though this, is, this episode is mostly around uh, the tour, which Peaches and Mink um, for auto worship, um, Michael is really wrapped up in all this stuff as well. And I just wanted to you know, let everyone know about the three of them since they work together in many ways. Anyway, thank you so much and enjoy. Let us start. uh, Let's start talking about your seem like in terms of horror is the big is the big love of your life in terms of film, would you agree with that horror is that thing that's uh, kind of driven your love for an interest in film or making a film or does it not get that far. Uh no, I
4: think that's fair to say. Um as a screenwriter and as a uh storyteller, I overall am interested in a good story. Okay. And uh that would be outside of genre or regardless of genre. If a story is presented well, then I'm interested in it. Um but okay. because of the kind of things that I'm drawn to, um stories that push the envelope, that speak to certain things that maybe are a little taboo, or um, are transgressive or subversive. Horror often occupies a space that holds my interest the most, because that mechanism of uh, the dark lens of the fantastic often can be utilized to address things that the mainstream maybe doesn't always want to tackle head on. And so from a very early age, I uh, sort of imprinted on horror because it felt a little bit forbidden. It felt like something uh, that was outside of kind of the more mainstream movies that my friends were talking about and was tackling things that were more than just sort of an afternoon at the movies with popcorn, there were there were kind of button pushy things. And I liked that. And I didn't necessarily come to that conclusion right away. But as I started investigating why I was interested in the genre, that is
0: uh, kind of what kept me there. So in you know, um, we'll talk a little about the uh, Can you explain do a better, better version of explaining your podcast and I will probably do real quick. Yeah, so Midnight Mass
4: is a show that I co-host with Peaches Christ, uh, who I have been friends with and known for a very long time. Uh, And it is designed to investigate and worship at the altar of cult cinema. And what that means is that Peaches and I, although we are both filmmakers, and show people and work in the industry in various aspects, we also first and foremost come to this as fans. You know, we make movies because we love movies. And we're particularly interested in those movies that are off the beaten path or that have created a community, the cult, uh, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, so every week, Midnight Mass investigates a different cult film or occasionally a subgenre or a cult figure. uh, And we talk about the love and worship of these individuals, as well as sort of their ongoing trajectory, because cult movies tend to persist in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Oftentimes, if we can, we'll get someone involved with the movie to come talk to us, but then we try and also get a super fan or somebody whose life uh, was shaped by that film and other artists whose work was influenced by that film or that person and uh, sort of explain how these movies continue to uh, inform and to persist in culture and so that's really what midnight midnight mass is all about it's a movie podcast but it's really a cult podcast it's about the cult okay. around the movies more than the movies themselves
0: and i mean i you know what i would say is in terms of the, what i like about the, what i love about the podcast is you know, you're bringing different topics into it you're bringing different um one thing i feel hard does if you really pay attention is you look at like something like uh, uh, number uh number four on the street there's certain movies that come with it with a big message and horror can do that a little bit i guess um i guess i'm trying to think of the movie the most and i'm losing it i'm losing it um but i think horror can take on politics and and certain issues in a way that other things can't and i'm just wondering if through all this you know you know i mean having the vision of that but also in all the episodes what were there some that you know the people you brought out to talk about them just blew you away in some way or something you never really knew about or something that kind of shocked you or any you know anything that on on the guest's end that you're like holy shit i have no idea well i mean
4: it all is a matter of uh perspective as well as lived experience you know okay. i grew up loving the whiz oh, but nice. then you know when we talk to Uh, a Black film scholar about that movie, obviously they have lived experience and a connection to that movie that I, as a white person growing up in the Midwest, am not gonna have. So, you know, it's just bringing those perspectives on movies that everybody comes to these movies with a sense of love, but how we love them and how that love manifests and what it means, depending what uh, corner of the world you're from, can be different. And that's what I really love about the show is that in the course of a single episode, if we have two fans on, we know both of those people love those movies, but how they love those movies may be very, very different. Uh, I always use the apple as an example of this because (laughs) the apple is sort of a cheesy musical, right? And one of our guests, uh, Julia Marquesi, who joined us for that episode, loves it for that reason. She loves the big glittery bombastic musical that it is. But then our other guest was drawn to the movie because he's an architecture person. He loves the weird German architecture of the movie. And that's what initially caught his attention. And he kept watching it. And then all of a sudden became obsessed with sort of the era that the movie was made because of the architecture in the film and even though it's supposed to be futuristic it was actually 40s berlin and blah 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 and so it was really interesting to have this one film that the world had sort of disregarded as camp schmaltz be something two people are very passionate about for two extremely different reasons and that happens every week and you know um I hosted a show before Midnight Mass called Dead for Filth, which was all about okay. the intersection of queer identity and horror, and that went for over a hundred episodes. Let's stick
0: a little bit to the lives you live that are more tied to queer horror, if you don't mind while you're on it.
4: I will, and but what it, this is like to speak to your your earlier question: the things yeah. that uh, that people connect to over the course of that show. Uh, which has carried over into Midnight Mass. As I talked to a lot of queer creators in the world of horror, very prominent people. And one movie that kept coming up a lot was Carrie. And Carrie yes. was a great example of the fact that it, it wasn't explicitly made as a queer movie, but because of her being othered because of the bullying, because of this experience, because of the wish fulfillment of, of pushing back against a society that rejects yeah. you so many queer audience members, uh, attach themselves to that. And so that's an example of the kind of movie that like, I understood why people liked it, but then to sit and listen to so many creators who have gone on to create the things that we all love today, speaking about this movie as as though it was foundational. And so that's sort of the symbiosis between Dead for Filth and Midnight Mass and kind of the ongoing conversation that Peaches do and and I do in all of our work is it's like, what is the movie that kind of rocked your world or or showed you something more, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and you do it in a way that's very open and very creative because you connect things that I wouldn't necessarily, some of your guests connect things I would not have normally seen. One of my favorite documentaries is, um, oh, what's his name? Chuck Norris in, Chuck Norris in Hollywood, I believe. It's Documentary takes place in Russia. Um, but it's basically just about like, uh, huh, how can I put it? It's it's about how uh, Russian. I don't know where it was. I think it's Ukraine. I'm, I'm sorry. I should be more researched, but I'm not. But it's a documentary. And basically, it takes place um, in, I believe, Ukraine. And basically, the, the long and short of it is this town of people get freed because they were inspired by um Americans making dubs of all these horrible shitty you know uh go <laughs> on go book you know all those shitty fucking movies and then like some you know people would it'd be underground they'd watch it they'd watch all the movies that they had in hiding and they kind of to me that's kind of a really cool way to tell that story because it, it, it uh it really changed the country for from you know and I think like what my point to that is that you got you seen the cover in that way where it's deeper psychologically, sometimes politically, like whoever's looking at these, they're looking at these deep dives into uh, whatever they're interested in, in under that film. And it's interesting that you, that I think it's always, it's almost more academic in my opinion, but not well, I, boring at all. Well, and I appreciate that. I think it's funny because I guess
4: shitty is in the eye of the beholder, right? And I, uh, we <laughs> often talk about True. on Midnight Mass um, that by and large, most of the movies that we cover were not initially well received. Yeah. Like, cult, cult movies tend to have sort of like strange lives where they fall flat. Not all of them. Some movies were hugely successful and remained successful, but like found their way with a niche audience. Yeah, but you look at something like Rocky Horror, which is sort of in many ways the mother of the midnight movie. Yeah, uh, Rocky Horror was a huge failure. It like, you know, critically, commercially, it just like fell flat. Everyone was like, What the hell is this?' but it started connecting with the right audience and when that audience embraced it it wasn't just because it was body and strange it's because they started finding a community and they found each other and so then it became this sort of like beacon in the night for theater kids and yeah. theater kids and people who didn't have anything else and so like that's like a micro version of using chuck norris movies to like you know create political upheaval but it's yeah. it, it's the same premise in the way that it's like the the audience
0: that needed it found it, and that's what made it continue. And, you know? and I want to I want to ask you about this because it, it's funny. You know this again I, in preparing for the in preparing for yours, I was also preparing for Mink, and i also preparing for Josh in a way. Uh, Joshua um, interviews, um, and <sighs> I, what what I you know I, I kind of wanted to. I was curious about how you all landed on your first nine because there's some really there's a lot in there um Vegas in space is one of those that you know I didn't really know and I want, I want to make one more comment before I keep going is the only reason I ever watched Apple was because of your podcast and, <laughs> and I had tried to get to that movie at least 11 times beforehand but well it, it teaches you it teaches you certain things that if you keep watching these things over and over again you might love them a little more well, regarding our first
4: <laughs> nine, and I actually would have to look and see what those nine are. I can list are. them for you if you want me to. They're, I mean, it didn't make a list. Sure. But what I will, I'll start with Vegas in Space. I'll yeah, tell yeah. you exactly why we started with Vegas in Space. Yes. Uh, um, Peaches and I both have connections to Vegas and Space. Uh, we okay. not only know uh, a lot of the parties involved with the making of that movie, it's also very firmly entrenched in sort of the queer scene in San Francisco, as well as the trauma scene of the 90s. So but, what,
0: year, what year are
4: you talking about in there, just to give people a framework? Uh, Vegas in Space came out in 1991. Okay. And, and so it's, it, but because of the connections to that movie, over the years, Peaches and I, in various ways, both, both separately and then later together, have um, celebrated the film's anniversaries. Like Peaches, when she was doing Midnight Masses live versions at the bridge, she hosted the 15th anniversary of Vegas oh, in Space. Wow. For shit. the for the 20th anniversary of Vegas in Space, I did a very comprehensive oral history with a lot of the people who were involved with the movie. That was a published article that uh, I'm proud to say is still used in some like queer film classes. Together, Peaches and I teamed up for the 25th anniversary to do uh, a screening at the Frameline Film Festival, where we brought the the living cast and crew. Uh, out to San Francisco so we're very very tied into that movie so we felt like of course if we're going to team up and do this podcast we have to do Vegas in space yeah But also by doing Vegas in space first it set the tone of the podcast that we're not only going to be covering just the kind of greatest hits of cult that you know that we're going to we're starting weird and we may return to weird you know (laughs) like the idea that
0: well, yeah, for yeah, every, yeah,
4: yeah. For every death becomes her, or uh, Little Shop of Horrors, we're gonna do The Baby or Thundercrack because yeah. it's important to us to also
0: introduce these movies to folks who don't maybe know them. Well, it's also—I mean, I don't. My history isn't great on it, but I know. But you're—you're you're in California, right? Yes, I'm in Los Angeles. And I don't know what it was that there was that like I, I hadn't. I interviewed um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy interviewed Stewart. Sch- Shapiro, who did, uh, who started um, uh, Night Flight. All right. And there's just like, a there's all these different worlds of just the entering of, of you know, the midnight idea from TV on to midnight, midnight film. Um, I guess what I would ask you in all these midnight movies is what's the one that intrigues you enough academically that you would just, you could write a book on it? Are there any particular ones that would interest you that much that you would spend two or three years on a book about it? Well, it's funny that you ask.
4: I mean, a single book, there are probably a few, but I did um, recently, uh, and by recently, I mean, it began in 2017. I'm the co-author of a forthcoming book called Queer Horror, A Film Guide, which was edited oh, wow. by uh, Sean Abley and uh, Tyler Dupe. And um, there's a handful of us uh, that it's a it's a project that basically it's an encyclopedia of Queer Cinema, of. and nice. there's over a thousand titles in there. I wrote holy shit! I, I think almost eighty essays for that book over the course of four years. So a lot of the movies that we do on Midnight Mass, I actually have written about for a book, yeah. and and many of the others I've written about in various capacities as well. As far as a book, I could easily write a book about Vegas and space because I've been talking about it for fifteen, you know, twenty years. <laughs> um, I think that Rocky Horror alone, the phenomenon of its continued persistence, deserves uh academic. Yeah. Look, however, so many people have academically already done that. So, I think for me, I would be more interested in the ones that don't get talked about enough. Like, yeah. I don't know who's begging for a book on, say, the apple or Xanadu, but I i would be interested in that. So,
0: well, there is, uh, there is, oh, what's the book I'm thinking of? Um, there is a book I forget its name, but it's about all the porn musicals that, that happen in like. <laughs> Uh, late 70s 80s like um one of my favorite is uh it's definitely his, uh, um oh what's uh but oh, it's a big famous one uh it's uh oh my god there's a song i'm gay in it it's just called i'm gay it's just one of the sweetest songs in the world hmm. i don't uh, know what it's a, you're talking a, about. um it's a porn musical there's not that many porn musicals, believe it or not. I know, I know of <laughs> many of them, but there's not a ton of porn musicals. But the one uh, "Let My People Come." That's ah. A, do you know anything about that one? I don't actually, but it, uh, we'll have to check it out. Interesting history. Um, in you know, again, in 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 thinking about the queer horror, what's what's like a what's a more interesting story? I feel like with certain times of movies, it's like you hear these stories about them, like oh, that's one print came from here and went there, and it was. you know are there any stories with the acquisition of these film films that's ever been interesting to you in terms of how do you get these things and even if not so much tied to the ones you're talking about just in general in terms of someone who have you you know i'm curious on how far you've gone to try to get a print or something
4: oh well you know when we do live events we have to deal with studios and things all the time and uh there is uh there is a a deficit of 35 millimeter prints out in the world now. And in fact, there are movies that are starting to be um, rediscovered as cult films, thanks to boutique Blu-ray labels, these places that are kind of like remastering them. But uh, I will use an example of a movie called Christmas Evil directed by a a guy named Lewis Jackson. Uh, It used to be that if you wanted to screen a 35 millimeter print of Christmas Evil, you had to track him down because he, you know, (laughs) he had it yeah and yeah. and that was uh, that was sort of true for so many people. like i I think that the studios, especially when it came to these movies that were a little weird or a little strange, they just didn't know what to do with them. So they would either lock them away or they would lose them. And if you were a filmmaker who cared about your movie, you kept right. the print. And uh, yeah. so there are movies out there that I guess we're still like hoping someone finds a thirty five millimeter print of so they can be rescued. As far as like interesting rollouts though, one of my favorites, and we talk about it, I think, in the second episode of Midnight Mass, is the fact that uh, Phantom of the Paradise, when it was released, was was a huge, huge, huge failure everywhere yeah. well, except let's... Winnipeg, Canada, and they kept screening it there so much that that's that kept that movie alive.
0: Yeah, and I, if I can talk about this movie because I, I mean, I have my I don't know, I got I got very lucky. I'm a Muppet, so people, you know, people find Paul Williams either through the Muppets. Or through *Phantom of the Paradise*. Um, right, and what's ironic about just my own searching in content for that film? There's more. I've never seen so much. Uh, I've never seen so much research been done on any ever movie except for, especially horror, except for that one. There's there's a, there's a world of lies, There's worlds and worlds of world information about that film that you don't find in other places. What is it about that one, for you, at least for you, or the, that it, it's, it, it's like the. It, <laughs> It, when people talk about bands, be like, "Oh, it's like that guy who influenced all the bands," but he, like, but no one knows his name because he influenced all the really good bands. I feel like this movie did something like that to other in some way. It did. I don't know well, how or why, but maybe you can tell me more. <laughs> I think that it it
4: it comes down to um, a little bit of ownership on the part of the audience. You know, the fact that that movie did not do well anywhere uh, theatrically except for Winnipeg, where the teens just kept showing up and watching it. It created this bubble of people who, uh, at least in that little region of Canada, were like, this movie belongs to us. Like, we we love this movie. And then so what happens is, you know, Winnipeg residents are going out into the world talking about this movie as if it's a movie everyone else knows. And people are (laughs) like, what are you talking about? And so it's that thing where it's like, oh, I was into the band before the band was cool, what you're talking about. Right, right. But then, you know, the the Internet arrived and became sort of the great equalizer. So then suddenly, like someone uh, like the uh, archivist, the principal archivist at the, of the Phantom of the Paradise, who had been like keeping all that stuff for years, he was able to upload all of these things that he had been preserving for years and years and years. And now everybody can find that because of him and he did the work but he did the research he did the preservation yeah yeah, yeah. and so even though that movie is wider and uh and uh, people know about it now the fact is is like certain fans in the before times were the ones who kept that stuff alive so there's something special about that because yeah. we might have lost phantom of the paradise if not for people who just nerdily really liked that movie
0: yeah um where i guess where did you find this where uh I think a lot about midnight movies for myself, and I think more about some of my favorite experiences in the movie theater being like the experience of the like being there, like there's certain movies I love deeply. Because whatever association I had with that movie and that theater made me love it and uh, I I find that that that's an interesting thing that people don't think, think about too much of how experiences in films kind of shape your shape your tastes. Without sure it's certain, certain for you is did that play out for you at all is that something that you thought about
4: i think so i think timing is everything um uh, a colleague of uh mine david Valle who's a film historian always says that um the movies that you see when you're 12 are immutable like the idea that like when you see a certain group of movies by a certain age like no, whether they're good or not they imprint on you and <laughs> they will always like sort of speak to your film going experience. Right. And I, I think to some degree that's true in the way that like, maybe not 12, but I think that there are certain movies when you see them at the right time, they create a, a bubble, like, you know, within you where it's not just the movie, it's the moment. It's renting it from the video store, catching yeah. it at, on late night cable. It's going to your the local theater with your friends. And it's, it's just that kind of perfect stew that then it's like, I will always remember this because of this and that's sort of like the dragon that cult film fans chase for the rest yeah. of their lives
0: um and i what i call that and i guess for myself when i think about it it feels like a ritual and, right. and this this conversation came up with uh, peaches as well is i've always felt i don't know who said it or if, i don't know if i came up with it or someone i, I think someone else came up with it that this idea you know for me uh there's a religious practice there's a there's a ceremony or a ritual in going to the movies, especially people collectively there's something right i don't know i can't even explain it there's something that draws people together in movies in a way that i i don't know i used to go to the theater on the corner and i got i would get there early and i'd have my own spot and one day someone sat next to me and then her boyfriend came in it's very weird like <laughs> no no one else in the entire theater but but there's something in communally that we want we want to be together for this what tell me tell me about that and tell me I don't know if you see it or not but does it feel like a church i think i thought about you know thinking about um uh research you know it's in researching a lot of the john water stuff and it's like um you know divine i mean give me a name that isn't more godly than divine i mean teaches sure. Christ's christ story of taking this thing and flipping it as a kind character um well i mean literally it's the
4: construction of midnight mass our show is A reference to, you know, a Catholic high mass. The idea that It's um, it's such
0: such a smart, simple idea.
4: Yeah. And, you know, even recently we uh created a new um a new kind of episode called the sainted subgenre, which I came up with because I was like, I want to keep up with the themes. But I think it's exactly what you're saying. There is a communal experience, uh, and that does make movie theaters uh, kind of like church, because it's something you go to share. It's something yeah. you go to experience together. That's basically the logline of what our show is all about, because I said it at the beginning, we we want to uh, bring people together to worship at the altar of cult yeah. cinema. We know what it's it amazing. means it's really to smart. share that experience with people. So yeah, I think that um, it it has that that social and cultural... Um, connector that maybe in previous centuries was
0: what church was, but we think this is better. So, and what, and what, yeah, I agree with you fully. And what is the energy like there's something about when you see something at midnight? Maybe it's just separate from film that just I don't know, it turns on. What is it about midnight that, that I remember even getting? I don't even know, it's kind of, it's kind of almost ridiculous. It was like some, it was, what was that movie? Um, I don't know, some shitty movie that shouldn't have had a midnight midnight screen in the first place. But I was like, oh, yeah, that'll be exciting. And I'm like, it wasn't. But it was cool. It's something it sold me, it sold me there because it's like, oh, it's a midnight screening. Well, it goes back to what I was talking about. The And idea... it was on a Tuesday, which didn't really fit. Well, either. that's wild. Um,
4: <laughs> it goes back to the idea of what I was talking about, about yeah. that feeling of forbiddenness. I mean, we're adults. We can do whatever we want. But the reality is, is like you're hardwired from youth that like, after midnight is sort of like the forbidden hours so the idea that uh you get to go and you get to share this thing and see this thing that maybe pushes some buttons because that's usually what midnight movies do uh at midnight and it's sort of like and then you get to slink home in the middle of the night there's something yeah it's it's almost constructed to be a little sorted in your brain even though it's not
0: you know and then you know thinking about being younger you know you get the little uh you get previews now but you would get that little like um the film that played beforehand that's usually had some connection which is the, you know the long days are gone of that but right. it was the whole thing it was just sitting in there you know um so we got a phantom and uh and in terms of my connection with phantoms i got I, you know i got to interview paul williams and got a little friendly with him and he is he's in fucking amazing we're having him on live for our 13th anniversary apparently Oh, just on zoom but we'll invite you we'll send you guys that you all pass uh and then so you go from like vegas to phantom of friday the 13th and then into jawbreaker and i'm like okay someone is someone like myself has seen probably 80 percent of all the teen all the teen movie all the all the teen high school movies um, right how what is one of your earliest teen high school movies that you love that you know just i don't know what was one of the earliest ones that got to you back in the well, day I grew up during the era
4: of John Hughes, and he was kind Ah. of someone who was so uh, foundational during that time. Now, John Hughes is interesting because John Hughes was wildly popular. So, you know, in the mid 80s, you wouldn't necessarily consider John Hughes cult. But I think what happens, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, and in fact, we talked about it later with uh, a guest of ours, Chelsea Stardust, who was on for the William Castle episode, because she's a big fan of John Hughes. And the thing with John Hughes is that um, he is so rooted in that particular decade that with every passing year, the, you know, kids today are not attaching to John Hughes because that's sort of very of the moment. And of course, when we look back on John Hughes, we can also see that he had some problematic things oh in this movie, lots of problematic things, <laughs> things things yeah. that, that uh, we now are like, ugh, that's a little bit ick. but. Yeah. The the cultural foundations, like there's still enough of a conversation there, but what once was popular has now become niche for like gotcha. niche film fans. So John Hughes by proxy of age has become cult, you know, and so oh. a lot of these things, uh, adolescent movies, um, the juvenile delinquent film, the, the evil high school film, there is a cult nature to them like Heathers or Jawbreaker, even Mean yeah. Girls. That upon release, there's like an immediate tide, but the people who stay with it, Darren Stein, um, writer and director of Jawbreaker is a dear friend of both Peaches and I both. And, you know, he's constantly sharing people who have tattoos of his characters or like, nice. you know, have made Jawbreaker art. And it's sort of like those kids saw that
0: movie at the right yeah. time. And so it has grown into a cult home for them. Can I share a quick story with you? Sure. So we had an episode with this guy named... um Gabe and I'm forgetting Gabe's last name. It's it's on our episode. It's uh something about Gabe and his his, his Herbie car and whatever it was. Gabe had has had uh his parent first. I don't know. One of the bigger movies he got was Herbie the Love Bug. Fell in love with it. Whatever. It's just you know sometimes you just hit the movie hits you and that's your movie no matter what whether you would have chosen or not. Sure. uh And goes and goes and he you know realizes that there's a there's a suicide in that movie. There's a suicide in the original Herbie film, where apparently uh, the car gets really pissed off because um, Dean, uh, Dean's last name, uh, I can't think of Dean, whoever was the main actor, um, got another car and was ready to give up Herbie, and Herbie almost jumped up, was going to jump over the bridge, and they chose a certain bridge in, in, in that area that was the highest one, you know, the one that people died the most at right and um anyway long and short of it is but blah, 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 he wound up like he knew at, at age 78 to get a herbie and he got one and when he was like high school his whole life was tied to herbie and he eventually wound up doing uh suicide prevention uh work in in a herbie car because the woman the aunt who showed him the movie when he was a kid killed herself it's this crazy wow. fucking story that's dark but he bought this dream i think a lot of us for me it's like it's muppet movie obviously but i but i you know, for yourself, what are what are your movies where something just hits and then boom, like your brain just explodes and then that's that in your brain that movie is now part of you.
4: Oh, I mean, we talk about this on the podcast pretty frequently. One kind of my foundations in horror uh, were watching USA up all night during sort of the peak era. Yeah, and, and uh, the the double feature that really ushered me into the world of horror was Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return nice. of the Killer Tomatoes. Um, which were sort of the gateway because then from those I got to see oh there's a different kind of movie out there than maybe what's playing at the multiplex.
0: Gotcha. Um,
4: but I I truly love um, horror that really pushes boundaries. But maybe not like when I when I say that people automatically assume I'm talking about like gore films or something like okay. extreme. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, I I am a big fan of uh, Italian horror. Dario Argento's work is really really uh, okay. Foundational for me because I love the idea that something can be beautiful and grotesque at the same time. Um, of course, something like Rocky Horror was really important to me at a specific moment. Uh, what's great about the trajectory of the show is if you go and handpick any title, most of the time, I have some sort of connection to that movie. We sit nice. and we talk to those uh, we talk to each other about those films before we ever select the films that end up on the show. Because they all mean something. Like, we don't really want to host a movie that we don't enjoy, you know?
0: So the one question I have in all your lists is if you're if you're specified into a lot of... Talk about being into queer horror, where's Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 on here? Where, where How have you guys not covered that second one, right? That's the one that's like... There's a whole documentary about the queerness involved with that movie. Sure. Which, and I can... I can Which is probably why you didn't cover But I'm just curious on... I don't know. That one just looks like I need to be sitting there going, I have to do it. Like, it's just because of just... The world it's in does that make sense yeah and i
4: can actually uh speak to that um there's this thing that happens especially when queer horror is uh really part of your brand um like I said, I hosted a show prior to Midnight Mass for hundred plus episodes, all about the intersection of queer horror, uh, queer identity, and horror. Whoa. I get in, I get interviewed for documentaries. I get nice. asked every Pride season to talk about queer <laughs> horror, and I'm thrilled. And like, and I'm, I'm, I wrote on, I wrote a book, you know, co-wrote a book about queer horror. In fact, I do have the entry on Nightmare Two on that. But Nightmare Two is sort of the catch-all movie that when queer horror comes
0: up, everybody of loves course. to ask you about. So, which is. I don't mean to insult you with which is why i think i don't know there's something about there's some there's something that they i my favorite movies are subversive and i feel like something sure. in that in that the, the subversiveness in that movie is why i'm excited about it
4: no no i think i think that Mostly. you're absolutely right i think probably the thing is is it's not that we've avoided it it's more because over the years peaches and i uh both individually and together have been Asked to speak about it so many times. You know, Peaches is in the Scream Queen documentary that you referenced. Oh, shit. I have uh, I have done multiple um interviews with very big outlets all about this movie. Mark Patton has done live events with me where we've talked oh, about well. the movie.
0: Okay. So, so there's
4: sorry. there's a thing where it's kind of like we we probably just haven't gotten there only
0: because we're, we're we feel like maybe we've said everything we have to say about it you know, I mean, in the world. I here. don't know it's it's funny because uh, you know you guys were very gracious to invite me to do Harold and Maude and I kind of picked Harold and Maude purposely because it seemed to be the one most people put on dating sites and, and claim to be their favorite movie and I kind of wanted to be a dick <laughs> about it and prove them wrong to a certain extent I wanted to kind of dig at something that I didn't that seemed that I don't even know if I could do this can I can I find new information on this i'm not even sure right uh, but but i was able to you know because and it's such, you know, don't know. so the, there's reasons those movies kind of fall in that category i guess um one of the going back to your list one of my favorites uh american marmer from in london blew me away i think it's just because of how i experienced it right um what it, that also seemed to be maybe maybe you could speak about this it also seems to be a certain time when somehow you were able to rent these movies as kids they were way out of uh they were way above appropriateness like i mean i remember it's just i don't know if this is a vhs thing but like i remember watching carrie and watching all these you know uh, when i was like nine or some shit. It, movies i feel like i would have wished i could have waited was there something in the availability of it that like this time frame having vhs is what i don't know do you, you know what i'm getting at? Well- like, i'm curious on what what is happening in that
4: I think there was also sort of a cultural um, blindness, or maybe even like it was the latchkey kid generation where like there was just less supervision. Because I think American Werewolf in London is a really, really great example because I guarantee upon release, many people came to that movie not because they thought they were gonna see something that was sort of horrifying, But because it was directed by the director of Animal House, who also was known for, you know, National Lampoons and mostly comedy, John Landis was not not a horror guy so probably a lot of people even the tagline of american werewolf in london was uh, from the director of animal house comes a different kind of beast or whatever it is and so like when you see that you're thinking oh this is going to be funny and there's this whole like kind of moment in the 80s where if a property just had enough name recognition it seemed good enough for people like and, and by that i mean like RoboCop became a Saturday morning cartoon based on what was arguably an NC-17 movie. Tales from the Crypt got a Saturday morning cartoon spinoff. The idea that Ninja Turtles actually was a pretty violent comic book turned into a Saturday morning cartoon. It was kind of like we complain in the modern day about how studios are only motivated by IP. But I don't think that today they would ever do like a Saw cartoon on Saturday mornings. It was just sort of like the the kids of the 80s were like, okay, well, people know this, so go for it. And that's sort of like how (laughs) how an American werewolf in London feels like it hit was the idea that, well, people know John Landis and he's hilarious. Yeah. And so then I guarantee plenty of people rented that movie not realizing they were going to see a man on all fours with his like skin stretching and turning
0: into a beast, you know, like. Did you see that? Did you see the documentary came out recently about the Star Wars uh, special? Star Wars holiday no, I know about it but I haven't seen it yet it's it talks about all these things in the same way um and what I'm curious on and one of my biggest obsessions with any film if you ever do this I think I've been bothering I think I have an alarm set to email Josh once a month about covering uh Valley Girl which is urge my favorite of all time film uh and um oh, there's a point of that story give me a second sure uh, where were we just at I'm really sorry uh, we
4: you just... were talking about Valley
0: girl. What was the connection to Valley girl here? And that was, what threw me off. Uh, was it was, what were you, what film were you just talking about? I'll, I'll cut this out. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to, uh, we
4: were talking about American werewolf in London and the comedy connection. Uh, and then, uh, the idea of, Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, the only thing I really wanted to brought up, which is more, um, on, uh, on me was. Uh, that scene with the fucking like they were monster they were like monster nazi monsters is that a, i don't know how else to describe them do you know what i'm talking about right yeah it's like the fever dream and when i looked at it again i i must have seen them i mean that movie i i love that movie you know frank oz pops out of nowhere if pop if frank oz is, is cameo your film i will watch it <laughs> fair just to find just to find him um uh but yeah, that, I don't know that, that film really, uh, that's during that scene, speaking for front guys, there's, there's a, while everyone's getting killed, there's the Muppets are on TV, right? I don't know what it was. It just that that whole connection of that. I feel like, you know, some, I think my favorite kind of horror is more, um, comedy horror because I think it takes, takes the chill out and that movie does it pretty well, but you know, it's different than like a, you know, Evil Dead is going to do it in a different way than that movie does it, but Sure. But I think comedy and
4: horror, and um, I have long maintained, there are plenty of people out there who kind of uh, decry the idea of intermixing the two, but I actually think that they are two sides of the same coin. The idea that um, something, if if kind of tweaked in a certain way, will be scary, could also be funny. Like it's all in the editing, it's all in the music, but also it's just the idea that both are mediums of heightened reality. You know, you take that, take something, turn it up to eleven. And it's either going to be funny or terrifying and sometimes
0: both, you know, and I and I think it seems like at least with horror, it being a little cheaper, people can take those risks more and more than others. Yeah. Um, I want to get back a little bit to uh, your uh, June Gloom productions. Just explain what you've done with that, how, you know, kind of um, in terms of production curation, you know, it looks like this creation part of a queer heart you know anything in that world that you're curious to talking about and then I'm also curious how that if it does or does not kind of go um open a conversation about your film is that if it's okay to talk about sure absolutely
4: yeah so June Gloom Productions is a co-founded uh production company that um I co-founded and created with my business partner, Brandon Kirby. Uh, Brandon and I first worked together on a queer television series called I'm Fine. uh, And we worked together on that for three seasons. And what happened was we sort of fell into a groove of um, producing content together where other queer creators kept coming to us and were like, can you help us with our thing? And then like I would do a short film and he would help me produce it and vice versa. And after a handful of those, we were like, we should maybe just make this official. Yeah. And, we, and we created June Gloom, and June Gloom was based on the idea of the creation and curation of queer horror and queer social commentary pieces. And uh, we have produced a number of uh, mini-series and short films, oh, wow. both for ourselves and for other uh, artists. Uh, recently, we also co-produced, a um, executive produced rather, a feature film from the UK called The Latent Image, which wow. is uh, only just now uh, hitting streaming. And yeah, we, we as an entity also produced my feature film, There's a Zombie
0: Outside, at, uh, that is coming out this year. So let's talk about that more. What, is, what was the idea for that film? What, let's talk about your you – know, it's your first film doing all these, all these big things, correct?
4: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because there's this thing when you're applying for film festivals, uh, they want you to say that it's your directorial debut because it's a feature, and it's odd to me because I've been directing TV for, right. like the last decade. I directed the 2023 Chainsaw Awards, which was an almost two-hour broadcast. You true. know, I've done a lot of uh, I've done a lot of uh, short films and and episodic. So it's this thing where I'm like. I guess it's like my feature film directorial debut, whatever that means, but I've been (laughs) directing for years. So it doesn't feel like I'm new to the idea, but um, yeah. So there's a zombie outside is uh, born out of the idea of an obsession with cult films. So in a way it is tied back to midnight mass. Uh, It's the story of an actor whose identity is, is rooted in a cult film he had starred in and his life isn't going so great. And then um, he starts, believing whether it's true or not that, you know, that's why you have to watch the movie that one of the monsters from a movie he starred in is, is out and about in the world. And he keeps seeing it and like how it kind of distorts the lines between fact and fiction. And I had this idea for a a really long time. We had produced a number of short films uh, that I wrote and directed that kind of played with, with, um, linear reality and i they did well and we were really happy with them and i i kind of pushed the the feature into the place where this is sort of the culmination of all the ideas of these shorts but put taking it into like a really strange space uh and we we shot it two years ago and it's been a very slow post-production because all of us have other jobs but we did it in the way that it's a true independent um we, we knew no one would uh probably let us make it the way we wanted to make it, so we just made it on our own. Yeah. And um, I know that like earlier I said my movie, but I always think of it as our movie because every everybody who um, worked on it made it happen. Like we all like, you know, came to the yeah. table with this outrageous idea uh, lambasting the world of cult cinema, and uh, it couldn't have gotten across the finish line without everybody involved, so.
0: Yeah, um, things are, yeah, yeah. Uh it's interesting that there's so many different kinds of ways to put things out. And I've been thinking more, I mean, you know, uh, I, I um, I got involved with different shows. I, I wound up doing a full podcast episode in a show called Mings because of how it's handled. And all I can tell you is from having many, many conversations about people that don't have ownership of their thing, that you know, there, a lot of people are putting things in out independently and they're getting their voices out. And that seems more important yeah. than other, other things. And, uh, you know, i don't know i don't i don't i don't know how people are still playing this game I, I got you know doing this i was doing a whole series right around the time of the strike so i got to hear a lot about the strike and i'm just wondering why people waited for six months or five months instead of just somehow where you're doing create their own production company because it doesn't i don't feel like you can make the shit you want to make unless you do it yourself in my opinion well, I mean, it, it's well, at least all, seeing all over the place.
4: Yeah, it ultimately comes down to financing. You know, yeah. like it's still hard to get money, regardless of whether it's a big project or a small project. And um, I'm very lucky in the fact that I get to walk uh, a couple lines and I get to live multiple lives. You know, it's a very it's a matter of public record. I've written many, many uh, movies for television for other directors. Oh. I've written, uh, meant like things for streaming. I have, you know, I co-wrote a movie for Netflix. I've written things for lifetime and, uh, Hallmark and, you know, different pl- platforms. And those are always, uh, fun to do. And I really enjoy yeah. working on those movies, but you know, there is sort of a bottom line that has to be met. Uh, and there is uh, a, a much, much bigger, uh, gumbo that, that is, is being put together when you do something like that. So, I, I think that for me, working in that space and uh, learning what I can there and making the money that I can there and then bringing
2: yeah. it to the yeah, space yeah. is
0: what allows me to do the weird stuff, you know? I mean, I'm a huge uh, Chris McGovern fan for his direct way of making his own movies and yeah. in, in the way that he does them. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with that kind of balance. No. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I'm a, I, I'm a full-time teacher. Which is how I could do any of this stuff at all. Uh, I don't know. I mean, would you, if you could, if you could, if you could make all the movies in the world you want, would you turn to filmmaking as something that would just that would be your life for the rest of your? Or, I mean, I mean, you're doing it now, but I guess the question is, I'm I'm wondering, like, I don't know, how much deeper are you want to go in this world in terms of filmmaking. I mean, it depends what day you ask me, because it is not
4: <laughs> it, it is not easy to yeah. be sure. You know, I think that for me, um, I always am drawn towards strange ideas. Uh, and also not, you know, I'm very, uh, I, I'm very proud of like the Christmas movies that I've written and the yeah. TV thrillers that I've written. And I, I've had people ask about those, like how I, I I, do those. And also the other thing, and I'm like, well, everyone's multifaceted and I have never taken a job that I didn't want to do. And I've okay. never told a story I didn't want to tell. Uh, and I think that in terms of the, Kind of pushing it into a new space. If I could do June Gloom full time, of course that would be great. Um, but I also am not one of these people who I don't want to make a movie just to make a movie. You know, there's gotcha. there, there are plenty of um, folks who it's generating content is is the game, and it's just like you know every every quarter we have to put something out regardless. And I just, that's not how my mind works. I have to get excited about the thing that I'm making. I have to be excited about the story that we're telling. Yeah. Um, luckily for me, I have so many ideas of things I want to make. I wouldn't run out right away, but um, <laughs> it's a just a matter of, yeah, it's just a matter of saying like, hey, is, is a full life of this feasible? And if it was, great. I. <laughs> We just need to get into a place where it could be so
0: never hard though i mean i can imagine i mean i know you know a lot about film I know, i'm sure you make some really good decisions is it kind of harder to start working in situations where you're making these great decisions from years and years experience and yet someone probably above you who knows very little is just like oh no we don't like that well yeah i mean look <laughs> it, it happens all how, the how time. how do you balance that out for you for yourself i guess
4: i think that you just have to know as with any job that not everything's going to be ideal every day yeah. and that If you show up and do the best you can, you can always look at yourself in the mirror. Look, as a screenwriter, I have written for many companies and many filmmakers outside of myself. And as I said earlier, I've never written a script I didn't believe in or a script that I wasn't proud to turn in. That doesn't mean that the movie that was ultimately made from the script is something that I always love. But you have to sort of make the peace with the fact that like, I did my job, but it is a collaborative process. And sometimes other people have different ideas of what that looks like, and uh, you know, it's it's sort of try and take away something good from every experience, and if it's not a good experience, try and take away something that you can learn. That's how yeah. I feel.
0: Yeah. Um. How is it in terms of working on there's a zombie outside? Did the did like the writer director relationship in your head was that trickier? Was that new? Had you done that before? I don't. I, no, I mean,
4: I've written many things that I've also directed uh, in the past. In fact, most of the things that I have directed are things that I've written. It's very nice. rare that I, uh, as director, have, have directed something um, you didn't write. that I didn't write. Uh, so that was not all that tricky, because I'll tell you, the writing of uh, Zombie was first. Obviously, you know, I I, I wrote it. I went through it a couple times until I got it to the place where I'm like, OK, I feel like this is the movie that I can now get on set with my actors, with my producers, with my team. And uh, really kind of once we got into the shooting, I left writer mode and entered director mode. And now I'm
0: in producer mode to get it finished, you know. Let's Um, I guess I'm I was trying to kind of figure out who you had to figure out who you and josh are based on your listing of movies and interests, and in, at least for them it got more you were a little tougher um because i think it was more the darker it seemed like the more the darker and artistic stuff trigger you um I, I could be wrong
4: uh i mean look i love silly things as much as anyone else i referenced attack of the killer tomatoes earlier but yeah, yeah i think it's true of the two of us um i certainly veer more towards darker material i uh my, my frequent collaborator, uh, Andrew Sepperly, who also is the cinematographer and VFX artist on a lot of the films that we do, um, he always says when he gets a script of mine that he never expects it to end happy. And that always makes me laugh because I guess that that's sort of the thing. Like, I don't, I don't always tell happy stories, which is, you know, I'm not an unhappy person. I'm just really interested in going into darker territory for, with, with uh, a lot of the material that we do.
0: In terms of like creating material, is that coming from? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to put you in the spot. You know, is that? I mean, are you a dark person in some way? Or is it coming from your own personal experiences? How do you, how do you guys figure out material, if I can ask? Well, I think the world is dark. I mean, I think oh, yeah. that
4: there is, uh, there is a lot to be concerned about. There's a lot to be mad about, and I think that there is, um, a thing where sometimes because there are macro issues, global issues that feel very crushing. Sometimes we forget that we're allowed to be upset about small things that happen yeah. in our lives. And sometimes like the most interesting movie concepts or story concepts are not worldwide. Not I mean, there's this new thing where everything uh, that is released by a major studio has to be like, you know, the fate of the universe, the fate of this, you know. But I think that, sometimes it's just as engaging if it's something small, the fate of a person, yeah. the fate of a
0: feeling, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, they say, I don't know, they they say the more personal and more, the more universal, which depending how you, I guess, handle that is how, is how it works. But well, I believe well, I mean, in that. I think Harold the... and Mott is a great example, right?
4: Because, yeah. you know, if, if at the end of the day something happens to maude or Harold, herald the world itself goes on but that's not what the movie's about the right. movie's about making the most of the time that we have you know kind of and i think that that's a
0: great lesson for people to learn and and what i'm sadly learning that a lot of shows are being canceled for i don't get into reasons it seems more money than any other ones uh how does that kind of how does it how does it fall into your world knowing you could easily get involved with this world and you're selling that they're just, they could take it away from you? It seemed like the shows are, I don't know, I don't remember this. I mean, I'm not in this world, but I feel like you didn't hear as many, about as many shows just being like callously removed as opposed to canceled.
4: Well, look, no. I mean, something that I tell young uh, filmmakers and uh, emerging screenwriters, anybody who wants to be in this business, is that there is a certain point in your career where you have to get comfortable with no. Um, So many people come to town with, you know, their idea of what the, you know, the great American novel, the great, the next great movie. Um, And and we all have that, you know, dream of like making the big thing, but rejection is such a huge part of working in entertainment that if you do not get used to it, I mean, it still sucks, don't get me wrong. I mean, like I have, a a pilot project that has two very significant stars attached. And I first pitched that project years ago. And we're still in the process of just trying to get it made. Um, And we've got, you know, we've taken two steps forward, two steps back. A pandemic happens, and then we get to go forward. And then a strike happens, and then we get to go forward or whatever. But it's just the idea that over the years of me sticking by that script, I've had plenty of people say no. And I've had plenty of people say yes. Yeah. It's sort of the like the law of averages, but also the thing about, there's a cliche statement uh, regarding showbiz that the person who gets the job is the person who's still there after everyone's gone home. And that <laughs>
0: is usually true, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how to talk about that stuff because that's why I think I really enjoy uh, interviewing actors. because they didn't stop right you know that's all hard that you know deal i mean and i haven't had it as bad in terms of like but but i I can tell you i have around 200 rejections of this if not more probably and and, you know it sucks every time but when you get that good one you're like holy shit it doesn't matter anymore right uh but it still takes a certain personality to pull it off (laughs) no you've done it and i i I am very uh I'm, i'm people that can do that inform it and keep going on these ideas that are you know, it's funny. I don't know. I don't know if you find it, but people will probably ask you like, Oh, well, how'd you get from here here?" And you're like, I don't know. You, you just keep moving. You find an opportunity to go. Like, I, I think these things, people will ask you about how you got somewhere. And I don't think people realize that it was a thousand and thousand different decisions yeah. and no one could ever have done it if they planned it. No, there's no singular
4: path. And the thing is, is <laughs> like I could tell you like the exact confluence of events that got me my first script or got me my first gig or whatever. And if someone tried to replicate it, it would probably not work the exact same way because it is there is a chaos element to it. And I think that there is also something to be said about the fact that if you want to work in an industry that is so malleable and where rejection is so prevalent, you have to be adaptable. Yeah, And I always tell people, the thing is, is that, I know so many folks who come to Hollywood with the idea of a singular vision. Like, you know, I want to be the next Brad Pitt or whatever, and that's the only option. And if I'm not starring in this. And so then what happens is like someone else would be like, hey, will you be in my telephone commercial or something? And they're like, that's not what I want to do. Not what I want to do. And they turn that down. But then what they don't realize is if they had gone and done that commercial, they might have right. met a person who was casting for a movie that would have got them. You know, there's this thing where it's like you have to be open to possibility. So it's, and-
0: it's yeah. It's like this weird the story you're telling is I forget what it's called, but it's um it's pretty common in like in like um uh, I guess Buddhist storytelling about this another way to tell a story is about the dad and um something about the, it was basically about a father and a son and the something about war and there's a horse. And it's just basically about how Essentially, these things flip like what's good one day is not, and some Yeah. and one you know sometimes also sudden oh, this is a horrible experience, but like going through it brought great rewards and you know and yeah I mean life is life is
4: malleable constantly yeah. you know there's any I, I think anytime you get too comfortable it shows it shows its hand so um,
0: in, t- in terms of this you know I don't know I'm thinking about your own life and I'm just trying to get into the stories you tell that that you know what what is it? What is it in what what is it in, in your life that pr- pushes you enough to tell to tell a personal story? I mean, I'm I guess I'm trying to figure out where, where what where your stories are coming from, and what made you decide to be a storyteller, uh, in general. Do you feel like filmmaking? And again, it's a tricky thing. Like, were you a storyteller, and that's why I film? You know, where did you start in this world? I guess. Oh, you...
2: it
4: was always storytelling first. I've always okay. been a writer. I used to write, uh you know, short stories as a kid. uh I I went to university for uh, English literature. I have a master's in English lit. Like I I really love, um, I love writing. And it's something that I I always say, you know, if tomorrow I can no longer make movies, I can always go, you know, and write mystery novels or something. Like I just enjoy telling stories. Um, But as far as what motivates me to make a movie for me to sit down and say, this is the next movie I'm going to make for myself. It's just got to be something that I want to see something that I feel like, you know, there's this thing where um, I think that everybody feels like, yeah, you want to think about who, who's going to be watching your movie, but you can't make a movie solely for the external. You have to make it for the internal as well. I think that if you are not excited about the thing you're making then no one else would will be,
0: you know, I think people don't really understand that, that you, there's something in in my opinion, that can feel egotistical, to know that you're writing it for yourself. But without it, you can't get anything there. It's kind of going back again, talking about like, the more personal, the, well, the kind of the more personal, the more, the more uh, universal, I feel like that kind of plays out as well. If you tell a story for yourself, you do it for yourself. That's what you get. Uh, and I think, well, you ha- that, you
4: have to be your first audience member, but yeah. also
0: I think the thing
4: is is that the idea of show business um, is is both propelled and hindered by the business aspect, because art art and business are tenuous partners at best. And I think the thing is, <laughs> is, is yeah, it's is, not. Yeah, sorry. Art is malleable. Art <laughs> is personal. And I always say, like, of course, when you make something, you would love the world to like it. You would love hundreds of thousands of people or even 100 people to like it. But the truth (laughs) is, as an artist, your job is to make something that connects with one person. And if you make a thing and one person likes it, then you've done your job. And, And, you know, so that's it. It's like, you know, it may be not great for my bank account or whatever, but if I, I make a movie and like that one person finds it and they needed it then I can't be mad can you
0: host that idea I'm curious on responses to your work like that that were personal that just you know kind of bowled you over and and how someone shared about how their their experience it was watching a film of yours
4: I've been very lucky um a lot of the short films that I have done have had nice little festival lives or existed on, on streaming platforms and uh, some of the ones that go into darker territory, um, there's a short film that we made during the pandemic, um, Absolutely Safely. It was uh, it okay. was a, a one-character story about a man who was kind of trapped inside with a monster. Uh, and that continues to get discovered by people. Yeah. And um, every time I hear from folks, uh, there is someone who um, really talks about the emotion of it, and, you know. It, they could have not been moved. It's, it is still like a monster story, but that uh, that they understood that's what it was about is is meaningful. It's just the idea that I, especially when doing queer materials, um, there were so many years when you would make movies and submit to submit them to queer festivals, queer film festivals wanted uh, only uh, affirmative kind of storytelling. You know, they wanted um everything to be positive in the in the <sighs> representation of the community. And it's sort of like, well, I come from sort of like a n- punk background where it's messy. It's cinema. Yeah. Like, you know, story is messy. Queer people can be messy. And like, yeah, I want those story, those good, those coming out stories and those rom coms, and we need those. And I'm glad people are making them. But like I that's not what I make. Like yeah. I make stories about people uh, who are not necessarily that i said in an interview recently, it's like, you know, everybody wants movies about queer joy. But what about queer
0: listlessness, you know, that that's something that I'm interested in. So yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, I don't know, all, all most of my favorite, I mean, I'm more of a documentary fan. Because f- I for that reason, cause I feel like you get more, I don't know, you just get the more reality, we get more realness from stories that they're I'm going to say real. It seems really. Like what I'm saying is it used to be profound. Now it's stupid. But there's something in in that, that I prefer. Even like my musicals. I went to see one yesterday, and uh, it's all based on true story and it's an interview. And I feel like something about all this stuff that it, something about the reality of it too is what the learning experience is. Right. Um, at least for me. Uh, let's see one more question. We'll call it a day. Sure. Um, I gotta go. Where, where you going? I uh this was a little harder to to take because of just trying to go in eight direct, directions at once um but I want to get back to asking about one or two of the movie the earlier movies um right and Terror Vision is one that I'm curious about uh and and I only I also brought that one up because it has what I call a bud the chud moment is there a <laughs> point in that, in that movie where it also becomes a buddy comedy with a monster at some point Kind of. I think that uh, what's interesting about um, just tell me about that movie. Why, why that one? Maybe you know speaks to your darkness or speaks to just like, you know, what is that one about for you? What was that? What was that one do for you?
4: Well, I mean, it's funny in in different ways. Uh, Peaches and I, in terms of the movies, uh, the feature films that we've made, uh, you know, all about evil is all about a filmmaker. There's a zombie outside is all about an actor. We're kind of interested about. Uh, in movies about movies to some degree. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, Terror Vision is great because it's a movie about TV. You know, the idea that there is this monster that comes out of the television and what's really great about TerraVision is Terravision has this extremely 80s aesthetic, but not in like the Stranger Things way where they're trying to create it later. Right. It's the 80s while the 80s <laughs> is actually, happening. And yeah. so when a, a, when a <laughs> lot of how you,
0: I love how you put that. Where all the 80s is happening, right, yeah. right over there.
4: <laughs> and so it's sort of funny because that movie, in a way, is is sort of like the model of what everybody tried to steal from later of what the 80s allegedly looked at. Meanwhile, that film itself is sort of heightened because it's like the mtv version of it like here's a monster that comes from television (sighs) that comes from this and uh i love it because it's weird and it's slimy and i miss when movies were slimy i like miss monsters and there is that moment where the alien that comes from the tv they try and befriend it but they really can't because it's a monster (laughs) that's trying to eat them they try
0: but there there's a excuse me if i'm wrong but isn't there a very small montage in there as well
4: I think so. I mean, I I really like that movie. Ted Nicolaou, yeah. who wrote and directed that film, um, I, okay. I think is a really interesting filmmaker. He also did the subspecies movies. He made a movie called Bad Channels, which it like pushes the idea of music video horror even more than. Oh my gosh, Bad Channels. Yeah, gotta watch that one. Uh, so he um, he is uh, someone who's after my heart because he understands that sometimes the the most fun that you can have with horror is meta horror you know
0: give me an example of that and then we'll call it a day if you don't mind
4: well meta horror is the idea of it's just like the um the movie within the movie the, okay. the the um the medium is is the danger kind of
0: uh what do you think i, I think it's called final girls that's that one um
4: yeah i quite like final year. girls yeah i love
0: that movie and it just obviously plays in that but yeah and again i guess getting back to it there's something in there's just something in horror. But i do feel like opens up for a lot of different worlds that you wouldn't get anywhere else um, no it's true and that's in it. terms that... of in politics and you know i don't know understanding how people act and it's, it's almost i mean almost every horror film is starts with twice an episode really if you think about it I mean, well it's true and it
4: goes back to what i was saying at the very beginning of the conversation it's the the idea that there are some things that people just don't want to talk about if you're just talking about them directly but if you suddenly yeah. call it a monster if you call it a thing, uh, then it gets a little easier. It's sort of like, oh, the idea of this. You know, George Romero was a really, really great example of a filmmaker who did that really well. I mean, yeah. we talked about in our Night of the Living Dead episode um, how... Night of the Living Dead coming out during the height of the civil rights movement was, was really significant, having a black lead. Then in Dawn of the Dead, the idea that he tackled the idea of capitalistic culture, yeah. set it in a mall. You know, Day of the Dead really addresses the military-industrial complex, but it's always with zombies, like that the oncoming horde. And it's sort of, when you peel back a bit, you realize these movies aren't about zombies at all. They're about
0: each of these things, these
4: concepts.
0: And and just to bring it to tie it in a wrap, what are the what are your bigger concepts you're looking at in your overall work, in 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 horror?
4: Well, it's uh, it's that thing. Uh, like I said, I'm constantly exploring the intersection of queer identity and horror, and the idea that we are allowed to be more than what media has said. Yeah. We can be messy. We can be the villains. We can be the heroes. We can. Uh, be mean, you know, I think I think that that's ok to have mean characters. I don't buy the idea that every movie has to have a likable character, but I think that if you're going to make a movie about an unlikable person, you have to justify why we're te- we're following their story. That's the thing that, like some people uh, kind of lose track of. It's like, no, you can you can have stories about terrible people. That happens all the time. Scarface is a movie about a terrible person. right? But there's something compelling about following his journey. And uh, this this modern era where everything has to be neatly presented with a bow, where every yeah. character has to be virtuous. Uh, no, I think oh. that we we should be allowed to
0: tell hard stories with hard people and be the better for it. Yeah, when I think my favorite kind of movie are, are ones that it, it catches a commerce and it catch it's the con, the commerce commerce and the art together, and I feel like. Um, some of my favorite movies do that there were like i don't know if you saw bottoms but yeah presented as this this hollywood thing but it's subversive as hell i bought it is just, i i've never i haven't seen the movie that much i haven't watched a single movie that many times in a long time but even that one and um I'm trying to think of what other ones that fall like that uh uh but bottom drawings reminds me a lot of uh pumpkin in the same weird yeah. and that to me is one of the most subversive films and and maybe you know you're not looking because they're not looking either. It's, there's something in the, something I've noticed in just animation and puppetry that you can do a little more, you know, there's a reason there's a lot of horror musicals out there. Right. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else you want to kind of, I don't know, wrap it up with anything you want to share about what you're doing? Anything? No, I just think that, uh, There's Zombie Outside. We'll be hitting
4: festivals uh, in late spring, early summer. Peaches and I, of course, release Midnight Mass every other Wednesday. Uh, We also are going to be doing more live shows this year. So uh, those are the things I think I'm allowed to talk about right now. Otherwise, more to come.
0: Thank you so much for checking that out again please check out the show information on peacheschrist.com runs the 10th through the 20th mostly east coast please check it out um thank you so much please follow us on instagram vintage Annals archive if you like this please subscribe vintage Annals archive outsider podcast um you know we are independent so sometimes getting these out is harder than you would think so anybody who liked what we're doing here uh, please share. This is like, I don't know the number. I don't have it in front of me, but this is like our seventieth or something episode. Uh, there's some great, really great uh folks that we've talked to. So please follow and subscribe to our podcast, Vintageanos Archive outside our podcast. We'd appreciate it. And also our website, um, VintageanosArchive dot com. There's there's a collection of video stuff. We have in our video archive, our own photo archive. Um, we have a lot of links that we stuff that we post on our page. Uh, yeah please check it out if you um, we also need help we're doing this all we don't make any money at this uh if you like to help we have a patreon we take donations and we're trying to get more sooner we'll get more into taking sponsors and stuff um, I, I have another full-time job so this is you know not my full-time thing uh but it does cost a good amount of money so you know we'd love to get some help and um even if you don't have money to support it just spreading the word thanks so much take care We thought in different ways. Look around.